It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome back to us, too. Uh, that's why I said it twice. Episode 76 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-conspirator, co-contributor, my tag team championship partner in podcasting himself, the J. Jared Bajoris. The J. Are you still in one piece after your encounter with Florida Man? I encountered the Florida man, and I am back in the pit, alive and well, and as pumped, P-U-M-P'd as ever. Hey, you know, the 21-inch pythons are back. I am so ready to go for episode 76. We had our nice vacation time. I am nice and re-energized. We're still throwing out the content from week to week, which was beautiful. We had some good stuff going on while we were gone. Uh, thanks, as always, to Cam, the man, the wizard behind the boards for taking care of things while we were on a little bit of vacay. I know you were in parts unknown. And to open up the show this week, I got to steal some lyrics from you yourself, Hey Elot. This is from the great lyricist, Hey Elot. It's been a long time. We shouldn't have left you without a dope podcast to step to. I love how you put that in the notes. That was a good one. A little steal from Rock Kim, if you will, but that's okay. Uh, you know that nothing wrong with taking from the best. So we have a a really fun show for you guys this week. We kind of felt bad because the way this all all went down, uh, timing wise. So we covered the entire season of the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs off Shutter. And we're going to hold to that because this week we're going to talk about the final season finale, if you will, of uh, the last drive in with Joe Bob Briggs. We still managed to head down there. So we got this in and we're going to be talking about the, the original Little Shop of Horrors. And of course, from 1980, Humanoids from the Deep. Uh, also, we are going to take care of some unfinished business over on the dark side of the ring and give you guys kind of like our season, uh, I guess, half season breakdown. And we're going to talk a little bit about what they have uh, coming up in uh, the rest of the season uh, starting in September. Uh, we're going to have much, much more and some goofs and all kinds of fun stuff. So the J, let's just get into it, shall let's we? do it. Let's go. There's now this is a couple weeks of stories, so some of this stuff might be a little bit uh, older or you may have uh, not even realized that you heard about it. Um, but I wanted to get your opinion on something to Jay. There was a story that came out uh, almost simultaneous with us uh, taking our little break. But AEW is in the red financially due to video game investments. And what that means is basically. Uh, they've not been a profitable company because they invested a ton of their profits into AEW games. Uh, this is according to uh, Forbes. They said the $43.75 million AEW received from TNT last year made up the largest share of its revenue, but it's a rounded or a rounding error compared to a publicly traded WWE's record $974 million in revenue in 2020. Still, AEW's pay-per-view numbers and ticket sales are growing, and the new show will add to its coffers. Khan expects its wrestling division to be profitable this year, though an eight-figure investment in video game development will keep the company in the red for now. Um, now, I've seen a lot of people kind of run with this and be like, oh, they're not making money. They're not doing nothing. You know, AEW's just fine, guys. Um, and I think this <laughs> and is actually a very... Smart investment on their point because the J, I'm talking to the guy who would know here. How much money is there in video games now? 
a whole hell of a lot if it's done right you know it's the big if but if they do it right it, it could turn that red to green real fast if if appropriately accomplished you know and they have a good idea on, on what they're trying to do bringing back the kind of you know the games we grew up playing with uh yep. what was that company the ak company i believe uh the japanese yep. company so uh they, akai or whatever yeah the they definitely yeah, have like a of a very good blueprint for it. Um, so I had two initial big takes from this article. Hey, you know, this, this financial status of AEW from here. And first okay. from, from here is like you said, where uh, you mentioned AEW is going to be fine from the online naysayers. Well, same yeah. thing got to be said for WWE. Now we do our of appropriate breakdown of WWE shows. We, we say the good, the bad, and the ugly of it uh, right, right here on the What's Real podcast from week to week covering pro wrestling and the WWE. But we always do state, and this is go back to the classic, he's laughing all the way to the bank talking about Vince. But as this article stated, man, WWE's record $974 million in revenue in 2020. So as much as people want to shit on the modern WWE and, and their current state and, uh, you know, more than anything, they're creative. They're definitely doing something right. And again, Vince McMahon's laughing all the way to the bank because $974 million in revenue, which I learned from this article, is just insane. You know, they're definitely not hurting. And uh, again, the other big bullet point here, as you said, with specifically regarding AEW, they're definitely not going to be in any trouble because they're coming from the cons. The cons are billionaires. I don't. I don't know they if people understand. Vince does. Yeah, I don't even know if people <laughs> understand the concept of billions. They have billions of dollars. So to take a little dip uh, with a brand new company that's only a couple years old, uh, I think this investment uh, again. If these games are done right, because there is a uh, uh, AEW Elite General Manager mobile game as well as the the console game that's been announced. So they have a couple here that they invested in. But if these things are done right, they can turn this into a profit um, in, in just a year or two. Absolutely. Um, there is so much money in the world of gaming now that it's almost imperative that a company like AEW would do something like this because without stuff like this, um, you're not going to get on the WWE's level even remotely. That's the type of thing that I talk about with people all the time. And I'm not, it's not a disparaging mark against AEW or any other company that isn't WWE. Um, the thing that this is the bottom line when it comes to most products and things. Um, it's not even so much about money and it's not about what your product is and it's not about uh, what you're currently doing or how innovative you are or any of that stuff. The most important thing is market share. That's why, you know, uh, for a long time, Pepsi was such a, a far back competitor of Coke. That's why in the 80s, uh, Nintendo you know, like there was a time period and there still is like if you go to certain states and you want cola, they call it Coke, no matter what you're talking about. Even if they handed you a Pepsi, you say, I want a Coke. If back when we were kids, Jared, if you if your parents wanted you to go downstairs and play video games, did they tell you to go downstairs and play video games or did they tell you to go downstairs and play Nintendo? Exactly. It's the market share. And. That's the thing that any competitor of WWE is going to have to like literally and pun intended wrestle away from them. That's very important. Even though WCW at one point had eclipsed the WWE in business, 
people that didn't know about wrestling, anytime it something came up about wrestling, it was always the, hey, you watch that WWF stuff. Even if you were watching WCW, someone would walk in the room and be like, I didn't know you like WWF. They just mean wrestling, but it's the market share that dictates that ideal. And without what AEW is doing right now, these early investments, you're never going to get on that level. So I completely understand why they're doing it. And kudos to them for being smart enough to do it where other wrestling companies could have done that. And they just have, and they're just happy being the small wrestling company on top of it all. Hey, you know, we always talk about timing in life and in business and in so many aspects of life, the timing is there because, you know, specifically with the console video game, the WWE's flagship console game, which is now 2K, was postponed an entire year because they flubbed the last iteration of it. And so now, if if they're not going to come out with all cylinders f- like firing as far as the WWE's next 2K game goes, AEW has a good chance to outdo them off the bat here. Like It was very good timing yeah. with that. Absolutely, especially considering uh, you're talking next generation platforms are going on right now. If AEW uh, can be quick on the trigger to beat them to certain releases and things like that, that can really help their market share, at least with younger people and gamers. Uh, it's and And I think people sometimes, too, maybe because they're not gamers, kind of underestimate just how big of an audience gamers are because you're every, I mean, how old are you? The J you're a gamer. Yeah. Lifelong gamer. I'm 41 and been gaming since 85. I always said the inauguration of the original classic Nintendo. Okay. Now let me ask you this then, because knowing what you know about gaming and shit like that, what do you think like the oldest gamer is like right now? Like what age would they be around? I would guess a little predominantly a little bit older than us because of Atari. Yeah which was slightly ahead of our time. So I would say in their like mid to high fifties, early sixties, other than like the anomalies of like a possible seventies or eighties year old that just happened to get into video gaming. But I'd, I'd say the average older gamer than us would be like in their mid to late fifties. So that means all the way that age, all the way down to, you know, five, six year old kids, I'm assuming. Cause that's probably when we started playing them. You know, it's, it might even be younger now. I don't know. Yeah, my my son. Yeah, my son's seven, and he started pretty much last year at six. Okay, so like, look how big of a grouping that is, and that's you know, you want to kind of capture that because gaming is a massive audience. It's it's a ton of people. Just because you don't game or I like, I'm I'm a very casual gamer, as you know, the J. But like, I get it. Video games are everywhere. Even. Put it this way, there might not even be a lot of older people playing PlayStation 5 and, you know, stuff like that, but they're at least playing, you know, mobile games and stuff on their iPhones. That's what I was going to mention, the the mobile gamers, too, because I don't do that at all as a big time video gamer. I'm more of a console gamer, as you know, and uh, that's something that I even don't think of as a gamer, that portion of it. And that's humongous business. And then just to even jump a little bit outside of that, too, there's tabletop games and role playing games and there's games still. Yeah, there's a massive market in this country for just games of all kind because it kind of hits every single you know generation, I, I suppose. Um, so it's a smart way to do that. And, and you know, this as well as I do too. the J WWE takes advantage of that shit. You know, we've seen WWE board games. We've seen WWE video games. We've seen all types of WWE mobile video games through the years. They take all these avenues already. 
No other wrestling company does. And that's why they're bringing in something like 974 million compared to 43, 44 million that AEW is doing, which by the way, is still great. But it just shows you how ahead of the curve WWE is with most of this stuff already. They've been doing it for a long time. Exactly. I give I give Vince credit for that, dude. He's always adapting and evolving constantly for like the last 40 years. And that's where I think Vince's genius is. I know a lot exactly. of people, you know, they, they have their own, you know, opinions on this. But like Vince's absolute genius is on the the marketing and, you know, uh, uh, productizing of his product. More so than any other wrestling company that's ever been around ever. And no one's even done it on his level. Even when WCW was super popular, they were 10 rungs behind even doing T-shirts, let alone figures and other stuff. That's what I was going to say to that, too. The list goes on and on like you were beginning to rattle off there. Hey, but remember, we brought up how they start when I first was getting into VR and WWE had shows that were in VR already, which I couldn't believe. I think yep. you checked one of those out. They had the uh, one of the NXT War Games matches. One of the first ones was was in VR. I watched. It was unreal. I forget what it might have been. Roman and Undertaker. I saw in VR uh, at a friend's yeah, house from Mania because he was like, you know, check this shit out. And dude, that was. I remember even telling you, I was like, dude, I've never seen because the camera for the 3D or the whatever you want to call the VR is like VR, in, yeah. it's like so in on the, the ring, ring post. Po- yeah so like you feel like you're watching the match like standing on the ring side like like on like the as ring. the ref yeah or, or the yeah. cameraman back in the days even like that's his view you know what i mean like that's pretty yeah, amazing cool. so you know and that stuff again that was years ago this isn't new for wwe so you know good move for tony khan but he i think you know everybody in the world kind of underestimates important stuff and overestimates not important stuff when it comes to wrestling. But like Tony Khan knows what he's doing. He's not paying attention to the bullshit. He knows the areas he needs to kind of move the needle to be truly competitive with WWE. And I give him credit for that. As, as the article goes on to say, Hey, well, well, it doesn't sound great as the above excerpt pointed out when the AEW promotion is back selling tickets consistently for live shows, that's more money coming in. Yep. And as will be the finances received from TNT for Rampage, which is their new show debuting in August. And we could yep. talk about uh, a personal connection there uh, in a little bit. And it says that obviously when the games do come out, hopefully that investment will prove to be worth it. As we're talking about, if the games are made right, especially if they nail that old system that we were talking about that comes off of the classics like NWO versus the world and, and all those, you know, WrestleMania 2000 and all those Super Nintendo games and Nintendo 64 games and all that, the classics, then they have a good chance of taking over the pro wrestling video game, um, you know, as the best uh, pro wrestling video game. Dude, it's I totally agree with that. And so much so that it's almost kind of surprising to me that through the years, nobody has just gotten a wrestling game together with that type of engine, even if it's just with like all fake characters. It has nothing like they're not, you know, dudes don't look like Sabu and have a different name and shit like they're all made up characters with that engine. I still think it would have been a success because people are very faithful to that type of game. Uh, you know, somebody that grew up on that game, me and you were both from that generation, the J, I completely get it. Those were by far the best wrestling games ever made. The most fun any of us really ever had playing wrestling games were those ones. So that's that's the source you go to. It's just kind of surprising that, you know, WWE or nobody else has really taken advantage of, of it until right now. 
Yeah, because everybody considers like the classic of them all where they really hit the stride was for N64, WWF, No Mercy that came out in 2000. And uh, just to make sure our facts are all straight talking about this, because it's been a while. Hey, you know, we just go off the top of our, of our heads here on what's real as we do. But it was published by THQ and the developers were the Asmic Ace Entertainment or AKI Corporation. So that's mm. what we were thinking of earlier, AKI. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, man, it's uh, it's going to be super exciting. It's definitely, you know, something that I'm I'm looking forward to just as a wrestling fan and somebody that really appreciated those games. So uh, my definitely my radar is up for that. And, you know, me, the J, I did this with N64, for example. This game could be the reason I get a new generation system. That'll be the thing that pushes me to be like, yep, I'm getting a PlayStation 5 That's now. a deciding factor for yep. you. Yep. Like, I'm definitely doing it now because I know that this one is here already and there's going to be more. So, you know, sometimes things like that sway casual people like me to a system. So, and uh, as the J alluded to, uh, the personal connection that we have uh, with this stuff is... Uh, Jay for the second time, me for the first time, uh, this August will be attending AEW Dynamite and Rampage, a two-night event here in Pittsburgh, August 11th and 13th. Uh, there'll be a ton more on the show about that stuff coming up too. But uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, man. That's going to be a blast. Uh, we're going to have so much fun, man. And uh, like you said, we'll, we'll be mentioning more details as the weeks go on and we get closer to the events. But of course, we're going to have a hands-on uh, personal point of view from being at those events breakdown here on What's Real. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it's been a while since I've, I don't know how to explain this, like going to a show that's not a simple indie or WWE. It's been a very long time, basically, because, you know, we were regulars with ECW. I would kind of put them in that category. Um, there's, there hasn't been a lot of examples of this in the last 20 years or so. So I'm definitely looking forward to it, man. It's going to be cool. And the building that it's in, the, the Peterson Event Center here in Pittsburgh, is a building that I like and I've always thought would have been really cool for wrestling. You've experienced it there once before the J, but, like, I think that's going to be just money. So I'm really I think that's just going to be a blast. It's going to be amazing. And once once again, hey, you, you and the J are making history. We'll be attending the first ever episode of their new show, Rampage. And dude, I'm pretty excited about that, too, because just from the sound of things now, originally it's like, OK, they're making just like this little secondary show and stuff. And that might end up being the case. But. Um, this being the first one, man, we might be privy to seeing something really cool, a title change, some crazy matchup or just something really cool that we weren't expected. And, uh, we have a pretty good track record, the Jay through the years of, uh, going to shows in Pittsburgh and kind of just dumb lucking our way into like history <laughs> somehow. So I, I definitely be unfortunate. Yeah. We, yeah. For some reason, remember, we used to always say that, like they always give Pittsburgh something, something. And that's been the case through the years with pretty much all the major wrestling companies that came here. Um, and I'm curious to kind of see where AEW goes with that, considering this is only the second time they've been to Pittsburgh ever in their history. So it should be cool. Can't wait. Hey, Elon, appreciate you picking up those tickets. Still got to PayPal your ass. Yeah, dude, way cheaper than I fucking expected, by the way. I just, I'm still kind of... Yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm still just befuddled by the whole thing. And Ticketmaster was even involved too. So like... Kudos to AEW on that, I guess, unless we somehow show up there and have to sit behind a, 
a pole. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of our luck. Yeah, exactly. Because like the, we'll have to sit behind a pole the whole show and then somehow dumb luck our way. We're like, yeah, we went backstage. Tony was like, you guys could come just chill. So we drank uh, Pepsi with the Young Bucks for three hours. It was neat. Or we'll just happenstance to sit next to that 400 pound dude from our past <laughs> with the uh, the alien farts. <laughs> I'm hoping for him or fucking Diego, man. Please. Yeah. I would. Oh, I'd love to sit next to Diego. Um, but dude, <laughs> staying on the term of professional wrestling here, the J and yeah, this should probably be for the last segment that we do on the show, but, um, because it's so stupid, uh, this is kind of come and gone since then, but th- there's no way I was letting this pass up, uh, without bringing this on the show. So somewhat recently, Kenise Mobley has revealed the WWE did not require her to know anything about wrestling before she recently joined the company as a writer. WWE shows used to be written by a small number of people, with WWE chairman Vince McMahon having the final say on storyline developments. While McMahon still holds that important role, a 2019 article from The Wrap stated that WWE's writing team now consists of approximately 25 people. Mobley, a comedian who's appeared on The Tonight Show, Vice, and NBC, spoke about her new WWE position on the Asian Not Asian podcast. Quote, Yes, I have just been hired by WWE, Mobley said. Given the things that you know about me and my entire life and what I'm into, yes, that's surprising. Yes, also a surprise for me. They did not require me to know anything about uh, wrestling, but I do have a background in film production and comedy writing, and they're like, perfect, come on in. So Mobley was shown a picture of WWE legend Scotty Tuhati after admitting she never heard of him, said she would feel very bad if she got beaten up by someone who looked like the former WWE tag team champion. Uh, But this is the thing that is the kicker. So the topic of Bobby Lashley, the current WWE champion, uh, came up and she basically said, quote, so I'm on the Monday Night Raw team, she added. So there's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and the people I know that are on it are Bobby. His name is either Bobby Ashley or Bobby Lashley, and I really should know that. Bobby Ashley. He's kind of like this giant black guy, and and the people who are a part of his crew. I know that they call, or at least as of last year, they called themselves the Hurt Business. Uh, The Hurt Business, they wear suits, and they're like, we're cool. Um, so, so here's another quick update. She's been released from her position and this is the point I want to make abundantly clear about this. I am not shitting on her at all. Not in the least. Okay. She, it's on them. She dumb lucked her way into a writing position with the WWE that most likely probably paid her pretty well. So, Hey, all, all the power in the world to her, she landed a job. Um, but it has me asking a question. What the fuck is this company even doing anymore? Like you, you don't even know the champion's fucking name. Like we've all had jobs, right? And I don't know of anybody really personally that has a job in something they love. Right. So do you know me terms and conditions and rules and names of shit that I've had to learn through the years because it's required by my employer? And the WWE doesn't even think it's fucking important that people can remember wrestlers' names until they get shamed about it publicly and then release her from her position like she did something wrong. This company fucking sucks. Again, say it with me. Hey, you know, the oxymoron, 
corporate, corporate professional, professional wrestling. Yeah, it is. And that's, you know, it's just a, it's just too big of a company for some of the shit like this. And, and trust me, the other side of that is there's no excuse for it at all. It's ridiculous. And, and you know what this brings up that is, is kind of killing in, in another way too, which is kind of funny. Like, you know how we talk about like that 500 pound dude eating wings bitching about big Ben Roethlisberger at the bar yeah, and how, how in the past we've been like, dude, we can literally write better storylines than this. This is a situation where we're like, dude, we, we could have been a better WWE creative writer than this person. I agree. A hundred percent. You or I specifically, you know, that brings that up. I mean, this is like taking like a proud asexual woman and throwing her in a room with a camera crew and Ron Jeremy. Yeah. it's And being like, go at it. And she's like, you know, what? Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And you're like, no, that's what we want. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. seriously, it's just like, and and dude, not to shit on this woman either. She's a comedy writer, okay? And me and you have talked many times about how difficult it is to write comedic stuff, okay? But here's something I also can say with certainty. I might not be a better comedian or a comedic writer than this woman, but I'm certainly better at writing comedy and fucking wrestling than this woman would be. And you know a hundred thousand more about wrestling than her. Yeah. So add in the fact that I know what's funny and I know wrestling and I would actually know how to make things funny in wrestling. Um, but for some reason, I, and dude, again, like I want to clarify, I do not think I know everything. I do not think that I would go into WWE and Vince would see what I'm doing and be like, oh, this kid, and I'm just going to hand me the fucking company because I'm this genius fucking writer. Fuck no, I'm a goof. I don't know shit, but I know I know this stuff better than this woman, and they have no interest in ever even considering hiring me. Not that I'd want to anyway, I'm just saying. And as you mentioned, she kind of dumb lucked her way into it, it seems, even though it appears, you know, according to her, that she was being honest about her knowledge of pro wrestling going into it. But again, that's what you get with how their system is set up. And and even wrestlers in the know that have come out of WWE consistently bitch about the way that Vince does that with character development and giving wrestlers that aren't actors comedy skits and, and freaking dialogue and monologues written by people that don't even know a thing about wrestling as opposed to the old ways of fucking winging it, you know, and, and just hitting the bullet points. Yeah. It, it it's really, a mess. It, it is a mess. Um, but you know, there's not much, I mean, that's why the product is what it is, you know, just to not to beat the dead horse here, but it's, you know, it, it's kind of what brings me over to AEW. Just yeah, saying. the creative in WWE currently is just atrocious. Now let's get why. let's get over to the side of things here, more in the more knowledgeable side of professional wrestling. Uh, I saw this and I thought this is a really cool article. Uh, it was on the Sportster.com. It said Stone Cold's highest rated pay per view matches according to CageMatch.net. Um, and now it's an interesting way of going about it too, because it's not just a single person or two people's opinion on what something is. So number ten was Dude Love at WWF in your house 22 over the edge. Um, This is, it's kind of surprising to see this at number 10 because this is by the company lauded as like one of Austin's best matches of all time. It is, but again, it's kind of interesting to see where they put it on here. Yeah, I always like that match. It's one of those weird things that stands out because it's back in the day where every single set for the pay-per-views were different. As opposed to, you know, the modern age where they just do like, 
you know, maybe a different colorway or something, but they're kind of all the same, like we bitch about. Yeah. And this one had like all the junkyard cars. Yep. And stuff set up. So that like stood out. And uh, yeah, it was a solid match, man. It was like over 20 minutes and just a really good brawl. And that was like the beginning of the McMahon character and stuff being involved there. Yeah, I mean, it was cool. And I hated Dude Love. Like, I always hated that stupid gimmick. I mean, I know what it, why they did it and everything. And I get it. But like, at the time, it like, dude, when you're a big Cactus Jack fan, and then he comes in as Mankind and is actually kind of won you over with being Mankind. And then he goes to dude. It's like, why are they constantly just making him dumber? Like it's just dumbing down the good <laughs> yeah. character every time. But the reason why I bring that up is because this was the first time as dude loved to me that I'm like, okay, they're going to let him have good matches though. You know, because up to that point he was just doing goofy shit and like, you know, like dancing around. Like he wasn't having the same kind of matches he was as mankind or cactus Jack, of course. But this was first example of like, Oh, okay. So in this gimmick, he can actually still have the kind of matches he used to. Yeah. Next up on the list, number nine was the Royal Rumble 2001. Uh, I'll just be honest. I hate adding a Royal Rumble on here because that's not really a stone cold match whenever there's 29 other people in it, literally. Um, so I'm more than happy to just kind of skip over. That one. Yeah, because they even say on there, most of the time a Royal Rumble match wouldn't be associated with one man. And it's like, OK, well. Then why are you putting it in? Because they, they do mention Ric Flair's title win, but that was a title win, which is different. Uh, this is the one where just Stone Cold stood out, basically, in the Rumble to yeah. win it. I don't know. I'm with you. I think that's goofy putting that on there. Number eight was the WWF Armageddon 2000 Hell in a Cell match. The Armageddon. I always love this match. Yeah, this match is cool. I've went back and watched it, it a couple of years ago, and I was like, wow, this is way more messy than I remember it being just with kind of certain shit being all mixed up. And at the time, I admit, like, so you're talking 2000, right? So you got The Rock, you got Steve Austin, you got Trips, who was killing it at the time. You had Taker, and then you have Rikishi. Like, I get it. He took the bump and all that shit, but, like, it made the match weird. He wasn't anywhere on the level of the other guys that I just mentioned. Um, it still is a good match, and it's the only Armageddon Hell in a Cell match they ever had kind of a deal, like that gimmick thing. Um, yeah, they never did it again, which was cool. Yeah, and the match is pretty fucking long. It's over like a half hour, so like I get why they put that on there, so I'm not complaining. Just to throw it out there, this is the one as well. I, I think I mentioned this in a past pro, uh, podcast episode talking about The Rock and his promos. This always stood out as one of The Rock's better promos to me, mm -hmm. which is saying a lot because he had to talk shit on all five other guys. Yep. So he got to so go he, like, on does and the on impressions and on. of them and yeah. shit. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It was a really good one. Uh, next up was WWF SummerSlam 2001 against Kurt Angle. Um, yeah, I'm not really going to argue with that. The the angle that they did at the time with the invasion was shitty, but pretty much one of the very few good things we got out of that was this match. So I'm not really complaining there. Yeah, I brought this up on our uh, summer vacation special episode where we did our personal top 10 SummerSlam matches of all time. This was on the Jays list and we kind of broke it down. So for those interested, you could listen to that episode where we go a little further into this match. But yeah, I always love this match. It was it was really good. I, I, I kind of am in, in agreement with you. I think their match in Pittsburgh Better. Uh, probably edged this one out. Yep. Uh, but but this was still a really good match. Yep. I agree with everything there, the J. So number six was WCW's Wrestle War 1992 War Games. 
Um, to me, this is almost, it's not as bad, but it's almost as bad as putting the Royal Rumble on here because the match has so many other people in it. And he wasn't stone cold then. That's when he was stunning Steve Austin. But I will say this, the uh, the War Games 92 is one of the best War Games matches of all time. And that match itself is fucking awesome. It's a great fucking match. This was great. The the Dangerous Alliance, it had Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Zabisco, and Rick Rude. And then Sting's squadron was uh, Sting, Barry Windham, Dustin Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, and Ricky Steamboat. Just legendary wrestlers. And yeah, I remember always loving that as a kid. And that was that was always, as we say, man, my pocket year at 92. Dude. Always stands out. And, you know, we I remember going on and on on an episode here about how good WWF 1992 was. Like, just the roster, what they were doing and everything. But dude, when you go back and look, 1992 WCW. Yeah, don't sleep on it. Real good, man. They had a lot of good stuff. Dude, 92 was such a fucking good year in wrestling, man. It (sighs) really was. That's what dragged me in. (laughs) Yeah, man. You really like it's funny how you feel about shit well after the fact when you're older. Like, you know, you take shit for granted when it happens. But looking back on it, it's like, oh man, we we had no idea how lucky we were in 92. Exactly. With a lot of things, I should say. That's how life is. Yep. Uh, next up, number five is the WWF Survivor Series from 2001. Uh, I totally disagree with this one. This match is okay to me. It's nothing great. It's the culmination of the invasion stuff that they that they did. Um, yeah, that that's a pass for me, especially at number five. They're kind of they're they're grasping at straws here for me. Yeah, I always mentioned I liked the invasion angle seemingly. A little bit more than a lot of people, uh, just because I didn't shit on it as much. I wasn't huge on it, but there were aspects that I was entertained by with the whole thing. Just being such a big fan at that time and watching all three companies and just seeing the the different interactions of different talent on the biggest stage that WWE was kind of, uh, I guess, was you know my my biggest positive of it. And this this match was good and entertaining at the time. But again, I'm with you. I just if I was personally doing this list of Steve Austin's highest pay-per-view matches for my personal ratings, I would not be putting multiple man matches on here as much as they have. This one included. And you know what? Like if they would have only included the war games match on here, I'd be like, I'll give that a pass because the match is really good. So I understand that. But like, man, to to put the, the Royal Rumble and that match on here though, I'm like, come on guys. Like you act like Austin doesn't have a good, like, you know what I mean? Like a good selection of matches to pick from. He has a lot of really good stuff and you're just yeah. <laughs> being kind of wonky with it here. Um, but they kind of stopped doing that at number four. Uh, this is from WWF Survivor Series 96, a match that I actually remember watching live at my house with you, the J, uh, against Bret Hart. And dude, there's no doubt that the WrestleMania match is the reason for this. But for some reason, even to this day, man, this match does not get the credit that it deserves. A really good match. I fucking love pretty much the entire feud between Austin and Bret Hart and the WWF in 96, 97. It's tremendous. Everything about it is great. I was just going to mention anytime Stone Cold and Bret Hart in this era faced off, uh, especially on a a high level pay-per-view match. You got me. I mean, there could have been four of them on here if there was four of them. So the fact that there was two with the Survivor Series match and then, of course, the infamous Mania match. But uh, I could see why the Mania match gets more 
you know, clout, but nonetheless, like you said, don't sleep on this one because it was a fantastic match at Survivor Series. And dude, the best way to explain it, because I agree with you about the WrestleMania match, but it's kind of unfair because I look at it a little bit differently pertaining to these two matches. This is chapter one in the book. WrestleMania right. is chapter nine. You know what I'm saying? And then there's the the goofy stuff they did it, you know, like the in your houses and stuff that are the middle chapters of the book. You need all of them to get to that WrestleMania point, which is why it all worked so well. And I loved back in the day. If you remember, the reason why this feud happened was because uh, Bret Hart got beat by Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12 in the Iron Man match. And Bret Hart took time off. And the way they started this feud was Austin was kind of like in the company and catching steam. He had won the King of the ring. Like he became a big deal. And then on TV, he'd be like, I don't want to face any of these dudes in this company. There's a bunch of fucking bums here. I want Bret Hart to get his old ass out of retirement so I can kick it all over the ring. And Bret was like, yeah, I'm not interested. So they'd have Austin come out every week. Like Bret Hart's a coward. He sucks. He's a bum. He cut the classic, you, as you know, the Jay, if you want to know my opinion about Bret Hart, all you got to <laughs> do an is S. put an S in front of Hitman and you got it right there. Like that's th- to this day, we think that's one of the funniest fucking promos ever. <laughs> and that's great because well, it, it hits you a couple seconds after he says it. And you're like, he really just called him the shit man on TV. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. but dude, that feud, man, is so good. Like, fuck. Like, that's the, they should have made that DVD with all the fucking whole feud on it. That would have been tremendous. I'd still buy it. I agree. They should have. But nonetheless, great match. Uh, number three, man, this match here has a strong case at being number one on this list. And I'm being dead ass serious. I'm with you. The WrestleMania main event of Mania 17 against The Rock. Uh, I know a lot of people don't like the fact that, um, you know, basically Austin was heel in this match or makes the turn heel in this match. Uh, But I don't give a shit, man. They bust their ass in this. They kick out of everything. This is as epic of a professional wrestling match as you're ever going to see. Fantastic. I always got to mention when we bring it up, man, probably my overall personal favorite WrestleMania of all time, just because the epicness of the show where every slot on the card brings something different and really good to the table. And there's really not a blemish on the whole card. And this is the main event of that show. It's the rock and stone cold, two of the biggest stars of all time in their primes, you know, cause of course in, in front of uh, the rock, rock and, crowd too, bang, in front of the Astrodome crowd. crowd. When they, when they first came back to stadium shows, it was huge. The crowd was, you know, such a huge part of that event. And you had the rock and stone cold wrestling three times at WrestleMania, you know, Austin winning the first two, the rock winning the third, but this middle match was definitely the best of the three. And the only, the only thing that might be controversial about it, of course, was the booking with the finish where, you know, Austin takes the chair from uh, Mr. McMahon, who was his enemy for numerous years leading up to this, and then just kept hitting the rock over and over to win it. And, uh, officially turned heel, which even Stone Cold to this day on his podcast and in varying interviews had said that that was probably a mistake. But nonetheless, that doesn't take away from a classic match, one of the best Mania matches of all time, in my opinion. And something else that deserves to be mentioned here, the Jay, because I think you'd agree with me on this too. There's been some absolutely great WrestleMania rivalries through the years. Like we've seen Undertaker and Michaels and we've seen Brock and Taker and we like there's a bunch of them. 
The best one without a shadow of a doubt is Austin versus Rock. Period. Period. I don't think anybody would even argue with that, I would hope, at this point. It's tough to. Uh, Now, speaking of arguing, number two is the fucking match against Triple H at No Way Out 2001. Like, eh, the thing that I remember about this match, and they actually hit on in the last sentence here, is fucking... The match is 39 minutes, and I remember at the time... because it was uh, three stages of hell. Yeah, like, three stages of hell is cool. It's a cool concept, but to put this at number two on here, to me, is very wonky. Um, I guess because of the uniqueness of what it is, but, like, and it's it's a super violent match, especially for 2001. Um, I just wouldn't put it this high. It would probably be on my list, but not at two. Yeah, I'm with you. I always say this with these lists, too. It's just tough to freaking rank stuff. I never liked that. I, I kind of always disclaimer my lists like this, like basically in no particular order. You know, you could try to put the the higher ranking ones at the top. I get that. But, you know, it gets so tough because it's subjective and opinion based. But anyway, for, for me, hey, you know, I'm with you. I, it's pretty high on this as far as being ranked number two of his greatest pay-per-view matches of all time. But nonetheless, uh, a great match. And this is another one that when things like this get brought up, I haven't seen it in so long. I'm like putting it in my notes, like got to rewatch this on, on the cock, you know? Yeah, which I still don't have, by the way, uh, which is going to be changing very soon because I heard. Oh, the, yeah, I always forget that. The uh, the icons on Luger's coming on. So I definitely want to check that out. Uh, and I think yeah. that, that's Sunday. I think that's up. So uh, and number one, of course, is WrestleMania 13 versus Bret Hart. We've broken that down, I believe, on the show uh, probably more than once at times. this point. So, yeah, uh, no need to go into that. And I would probably, you know, agree with that. So. Good call. Interesting list. I figured it'd be uh, remotely interesting to bring up here on the show. Uh, and uh, it didn't surprise me there, the Jay, that it kind of got us, you know, talking about some stuff. Um, yeah. And anytime we could talk classic Stone Cold, I'm down. You know that. Hey, yeah. And one of my favorite peeps. I love that man. And dude, another Sportster article that I thought was pretty interesting. Ten wrestlers you didn't re- realize main evented pay-per-views in both WWE and WCW. Did you get a chance to look at this? Yes, I did. Okay, so you got Sid, uh, who main evented WrestleMania 13 against Taker and Starcade 2000 uh, against someone that we're not going to talk about. Um, DDP uh, was the uh, the Invasion 2001 pay per view and various for WCW. Sting, of course, did Night of Champions 2015 and various for WCW and probably TNA as well. Uh, this one's pretty interesting. Brian Pillman. In your house, Canadian Stampede and Wrestle War ninety one. Yeah. Number six, Ron Simmons, Halloween Havoc ninety one and King of the Ring ninety seven in a terrible match against the Undertaker. Uh, number five, Ravishing Rick Rude, Wrestle War ninety two and SummerSlam ninety. Davy Boy Smith at number four with Slamboree ninety three against Vader and of course SummerSlam ninety two against Brett. We got Cactus Jack at Halloween Havoc 93 and No Way Out 2000 against Trips. That fucking, that match is unbelievable. That might be Trips' yeah. best match of his career, to be honest. Uh, two, Brutus Beefcake. Yeah, that was real surprising. SummerSlam 89, which I would have thought of immediately, and Starcade 94 against Hogan, which is bizarre. And this is one that I think I would remember, Zeus 
which technically he wasn't Zeus for both of these, but they gave it to him anyway. SummerSlam 89 and Uncensored 1996. So as Z gangsta. Yeah, that's what I mean. So like, why should he get put on that list? Because he technically was something different because they used that provision earlier with the Cactus Jack thing. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so I don't know. It's just kind of funny, but but I thought it was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And I was laughing at this just, uh, you know, not the side tangent, but uh, the second one when we talked about Brutus Beefcake and, and then in the article it says, <laughs> the barber became the butcher, no blade yet, and headlined Starcade with Hogan, the worst main event in Starcade history. <laughs> yeah, and dude. Gotta throw that out there. And they were making Starcades until like 2000, 2001. <laughs> so that's saying a fucking <laughs> lot, man. Like, yeah. Jesus. What an idiot. Yeah, but hey, you know, it became Hogan and Friends in WCW and it kind of ruined everything that they had because there were so many cool possibilities at the time. But you know how that goes, man. It doesn't always work out that way. And uh, another quick wrestling note before we move on to some other stuff. ACH has apparently retired from professional wrestling, uh, which is kind of a bummer because I thought that that dude was uh, pretty good at one point and uh, was doing really good for himself and uh, that doesn't seem to be in the cards for him any longer. Yeah, we liked him a lot in ROH. You know, like you said, I think that was would be considered his prime, uh, from my opinion, and what I've seen of his career. Uh, also, of course, wrestling overseas, he was he has wrestled in New Japan and AAA. Uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, man, you could only go for so long before you might have to make some life changes because he has been wrestling since 2007. So that's a hell of a run, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, when, when you get to the point where, you know, he gets to NXT, they branded him as Jordan Miles at the time. He actually won the, the breakout tournament, which they're, they actually just announced they're doing another one of those and, uh, you know, won this freaking tournament in NXT. You think he'd be a standout, get pushed. But it, I, I did remember this from this article, which I kind of forgot about at that time in 2019, he had a controversial exit from NXT mm-hmm. and announced that he had quit. And then, but then he ended up wrestling um, again abroad for a while in the Indies, MLW, GCW, New Japan. Uh, then he quit again in December 2019, and then um, continued to wrestle. And at this point, uh, I guess he's definitely a, a fully retiring. And he did express remorse over how he did handle his WWE exit as well. So it's always good when you you kind of put your heads up and admit your mistakes too, even with a big company that is WWE. I mean, you could just say fuck them, but uh, I guess he, you know, admitted that he didn't handle it to the best of his ability either. So, but shout out to ACH man from, from some of the matches I saw again, going in in ROH, I I saw him predominantly. He was a spectacular in ring performer. Absolutely. So best of wishes to ACH in his retirement of professional wrestling, which we don't see a whole lot of through the years. So, Kudos to him for that as well. Uh, another article in the world of professional football that I thought was pretty interesting, the J. Uh, SportsIllustrated.com's all-time NFL undrafteds team. Um, now, this is pretty crazy here because there's, you know, I guess I didn't realize some of these people that were on here. and I didn't, reading through it. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty wild, so I'll just go through. The, qu- the quarterback of the offense is Kurt Warner from 1994, uh, totally agree with that. I think that's a great choice. Former two-time uh, MVP. He's, I mean, he would be your first. Like, yeah, dude was a yeah, really classic good. story. They're they're actually doing a, a movie with uh, uh, Levi. I forget his last name. That plays Shazam. He's playing Kurt Warner. 
but there's a big movie coming out on his career. It looks actually pretty huh. cool because his story is awesome. I didn't even realize that, but that is kind of cool that they're doing. That. I was just reading about that today. No. Yeah. Zachary Levi. Okay. Yeah. 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 Of course. I don't know why that totally slipped my mind. Uh, now this was pretty weird. The running backs and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, Marion Motley, 1946, Hall of Fame, NFL's 100th anniversary team, uh, 40s NFL All-Decade Pro Bowl, 1950 NFL Rushing Champion, and Joe Perry from 1948, Hall of Fame, 50s NFL All-Decade, three Pro Bowls, two-time NFL Rushing Champion. Um, kind of hard to believe that there's been nobody that's kind of eclipsed guys like that since the 40s at running back. Yeah, and and I, at first I thought they were talking about Joe Perry from Aerosmith, but then I realized he was um, not that age in the '40s or an NFL running back. AKA. Exactly. Yeah, I I, th- I thought he was <laughs> that age in the '40s, but then he didn't play running back. <laughs> he probably was. <laughs> yeah. Keith, Keith Richards was. That's for sure. Exactly. And he'll be here 140 years after all of us. So, uh, the wide receivers. This. Pretty much makes sense. Drew Pearson, 1973, Hall of Fame, NFL's All-Decade of the 70s, three Pro Bowls, led the NFL in receptions in 76 and 77 uh, in yards, uh, was in 77. Uh, Wes Welker, five Pro Bowls, three-time NFL receiving champion, five 100-catch seasons. Uh, tight end, Antonio Gates. That's the one that I probably agree with the most. I'm with here. you. I thought I thought he was drafted. Yeah, me too. I have no idea how the fuck that escaped every goddamn team multiple times because the dude's literally he's NFL 2000s All-Decade, eight Pro Bowls, NFL tight end record, 116 career touchdown receptions, and literally has maybe the only claim right now at being the greatest of all time, except for Tony Gonzalez, who I think right now still is the greatest tight end of all time. So it's like between those two guys right now, but sadly all their records about to die. Uh, We'll see that real fast. Um, Yeah. Offensive tackles and stuff like that. Uh, Basically uh, Lou Groza, 1946, Joe Jacoby, 1981. Larry Little guard, 1967, Uh, Nate Newton guard, 1983, Six Pro Bowls, blocked for all four of Emmett Smith's NFL rushing titles, and boy, did he move a lot of cocaine almost immediately once he retired. But I didn't know Nate Newton wasn't uh, drafted. That's pretty wild. Neither did I. I'm, yeah, I remembered him from those Cowboy years for sure. Uh, Jim Langer, the center, 1970, Hall of Fame, 70s All-Decade, six Pro Bowls, in blocking front of the only perfect team in NFL history of the NFL, uh, the Miami Dolphins. Uh, that set the league record uh, for rushing yards in a season, which has since been broken. Uh, defense is Coy Bacon, defensive end, 1967. Defensive end, Michael Bennett from 2009, who I didn't realize wasn't drafted. Uh, defensive tackles, the one that I agree with probably the most here on the defense is uh, John Randall, a Hall of John Randall. Hall. I, yeah, I couldn't believe yeah, he was. Yeah, I knew he drafted. wasn't. That was always his big shtick. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer, NFL's 100th anniversary team, 90s NFL All Decade, seven Pro Bowls, 137 and a half career sacks, and the 97 NFL sack champion. Also, defensive tackle Bill Willis, 1946. Of course, here's the Pittsburgh Steeler on the list. James Harrison, five-time Pro Bowler, NFL's defensive player yeah, always in the year, knew that. 2008, scored the longest touchdown in Super Bowl history in 2009 on a 100-yard interception 
of a Kurt Warner pass. So, you know, got to get the Steelers on there. You know how that goes. That that was always his shtick, too, is undrafted. Uh, London yeah, Fletcher, I, mean. uh, I didn't realize, was undrafted. He was pretty short. Nope. Four Pro Bowls, 2,039 career tackles, second of all time. Outside linebacker Bart Scott didn't know he was undrafted until I saw this too. Surprise! Pro Bowl, twenty-five career sacks, seven forced fumbles, four interceptions, and he can't wait to come to Pittsburgh and lose. That's his calling card for when he played for the Jets. Uh, Dick Night Train Lane, uh, considered by most to be the greatest corner of all time, NFL Hall of Famer, hundred anniversary team, fifties All Decade, seven Pro Bowls, NFL sixty-eight. Uh, interceptions, which is a record by a cornerback. Also NFL record, 14 interceptions in a single season and a two-time interception champion, Willie Brown from the Raiders, uh, Emmy Tunnel uh, from 1948, Cliff Harris, safety, of course, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, by the way. Um, Captain Crash. Yeah, exactly. And then special teams, Adam Vinatieri. I mean, that makes sense because kickers just really aren't drafted a lot. Jeff Fiegel's, uh Hunter from our youth. Uh, I didn't know that Josh Cribbs wasn't uh, drafted. Remember him no. for the Browns? He was like the only good player. Oh, of they course. Had. Uh, Don Molbach uh, from the Long Snappers and uh, Bill Gates, special teams player, of course. Or I'm sorry, Bill Bates. Everybody remembers Billy Bates from the Cowboys. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty solid list, man. I, I just thought that was super interesting when I read it because it's like. Yeah, a lot of surprises. I'm seeing with you. Seeing all put together like that uh, was pretty wild. So. Yep. Dude, did you see this story about the stolen red Octobers? As far as sneakers go, we're moving into. Yeah. The, no, yeah fu- that's, fuck a segue. That sucks. We're talking about some sneakers. So the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because we do talk a lot about Nike and reselling and stuff like that. Now, check this out. So there's a, a, the Nike Air Easy 2 is called the Red Octobers. These are over $9,000 now on the resale uh, world. Um, and basically he had a pair stolen and it's kind of interesting how this works. So he sold the shoe on StockX, and it was received for processing at one of the warehouses. Two weeks later, the seller received an email from StockX stating that his shoe didn't pass an authentication process because the warehouse received uh, a random pair of shoes with the label for this sale per an email of one of the brand's customer service representatives. The representative said uh, that then started the claim was not an option as the shipping box didn't appear to have been tampered with in transit. Quizzically, there was no offer from StockX to send the shoes back standard procedure after a sale is rejected. Now, I've heard stuff like this before, and this is another reason why I don't like StockX. I don't trust that somebody's not going to rip me off. Now, most things that I'm talking about selling, I wouldn't care about because we're only talking shoes that are maybe worth two, three hundred bucks. Couple hundred bucks. Exactly. I would never, through an online source like that, sell a fucking nine, twelve, thirty thousand dollar pair of shoes. You're out of your fucking mind. You will come to me to look at these shoes and you will decide there if you want to purchase them or not. We I'll send you pictures and shit. But like, there is no send to this and de- fuck that. Uh, uh-uh. there's no. We don't need any middlemen in this fucking process. I'm selling a thirty thirty fucking thousand dollar pair of sneakers. No one else will be involved in this fucking sale, but the buyer and the seller, as far as I'm concerned. And these weren't that much, but still nine thousand going up probably is still nothing to shake a fucking stick at for shoes. 
as as he himself, the seller, said, very fishy as pictures are always taken of the item and returned if there was an issue, not binned. That kind of kills their whole argument on this one, I feel. Like, yeah. I understand funny shit can happen. They went against process. Exactly. And when you do that, to me, you're automatically in the it's wrong. It's fishy. Because yeah. you've allowed for that hole to open up. I think somebody, whether it was a UPS guy or StockX, and again, there could be varying different situations. I'm, I'm just saying from the outside in, just my opinion here talking about it, somebody just caught them. Somebody stole yeah. them. Whether it's UPX or somebody in StockX. Because again, you're talking $9,000 shoes, not a couple hundred. So. Yeah, it's put it this way too. It could be very simple of like maybe the UPS, somebody there was like moving the package and next thing you know, maybe it got crushed. Maybe it got fucked up or something and somebody realized what it was and we're like, uh-uh, no, we're playing a game with this. We're going to rewrap it. We're going to do the whole nine and we're just going to send it fucking through. Um, I don't know, but something's fishy there. And dude, this article is a little bit older like I said, and there's still been no word of any kind of resolution or anything for this. That's all I was going to ask you for any sort of follow-up because, yeah, I know uh, like what we're saying, the Air Yeezy 2 Red Octobers sold on StockX for 8602 9200 and 12300 in June 2021 alone. There you go. They kind of... It, 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 <laughs> so, this shit's big business, man. Uh, they're, they're not playing games no. anymore, so... Uh, another quick article, because I can't even read it at this point, because I've read um, I'm on my limit of free articles through the, the New York Times. But the secret <laughs> psychology of sneaker colors. You think they randomly choose those glaring shades of Nike Adidas and New Balance? Think again. Um, yeah, no shit, because we this is stuff that we say all the time. A lot of this stuff done is done with purpose. And by that, I mean so much so that like sometimes and I've seen New Balance do this specifically. Um, but there might be like, say something, some things coming out in the fall from Ralph Lauren and they put out certain sneakers that are exact colorway matches for it. You see this type of stuff. All, Nike does it basically with every Jordan release. Like whenever they put out a popular Jordan, they put out shirts, they put out shorts, they put out track pants, they put out socks, they put out everything to be like, because Nike doesn't want you to just buy the Jordans. They want you to buy the Jordans and seven outfits from them that match everything. So that's why a lot of this stuff happens. But they don't always do it within company. Sometimes they're looking for like fashion trends and other shit and they'll match the colorways up exactly because they know that's going to get a lot more people to purchase them outside of people that just don't know what it is and just like the colors itself. And psychology is such an underlying aspect of so many businesses, especially when you're talking fashion and high-end sneakers and stuff that people don't think about or realize. So this this was a really cool article. It's like, you know, coming from Pittsburgh, you don't think they pump up the the black and gold colorways of Jordan way, Jordan ones and things like that for, for you know, internet sites in our area yeah. and things like that. Yeah, there's definitely, and dude, you know this too, not even saying that if some Steeler color Jordans come out, that we would get more pairs than anybody else. It would just be harder to get them here because people want them more here. Just like I'm sure when a Knicks colorway of something comes out, might be able to find it around here, but go to fucking Brooklyn and try and find them. Shit ain't happening. You know what I mean? It's just supply and yeah, demand. And there's, that's all, dude, they do this with everything. Like, why do you think that Nike, for example, will hold off on putting the band Jordan 1s out? or the Chicago ones out because they, they know that the longer they keep new pairs out of circulation, the more anticipation it builds for a future release because those original colorways are something that collectors always want. Um, and then comes the hype. Hey, yeah. Yo. It all 
kind of works together. Like, believe me, there's not a thing, and I don't mean shoes either. There's not a thing that any of us purchase where the box hasn't been carefully designed and created with the thought of intent of like, oh, the colors pop and kids are going to love this and adults are like this and men like that and women like this. And believe me, they have done that shit to death. I kind of learned that years ago whenever I was doing blood type and I would see a lot of the press release stuff that would we would get for shit. And it's like, you really see, you know, like they tell stores, like when you put this out, you put it by the front of the store away from this, but by that we want people to see it yep. upon entry and only at entry. Like there's reasons for all that stuff. And they've fucking, you know, data that stuff to death at this point. That's why they do it all. Makes sense. You know, when you really think about it and that's, how you push tens of thousands of sneakers a month exactly so you know they're they're the experts for a reason so uh just one more thing here before uh we take our first commercial break and i wanted to get your opinion on all this today because me and you have not really talked about this at all um we did talk a little bit earlier today about quentin tarantino off the air uh and his novel uh for once upon a time in hollywood uh but there's been a lot of back and forth stuff over the last couple of months. And basically since the movie came out uh, between Shannon Lee, Bruce Lee's daughter and Quentin Tarantino, um, everything from, you know, I see she really kind of went at him on one thing and kind of was saying like, she's tired of how white men in Hollywood keep reiterating to her, how her dad was and how he should be and things like that. And kind of how Tarantino also, has had this running history of kind of shitting on Bruce Lee in interviews and stuff. Um, it's pretty weird. Uh, I just kind of wanted to see where you stood on this, the Jay, and what you thought about it. I am on Shannon Lee's side on this. Of course, I love Tarantino um, as far as a director goes and a filmmaker. I love all his movies. Uh, with the promotion of his book, of course, he was doing a publicity tour and was on a ton of podcasts I listened to, which he typically doesn't do. Uh, I've heard him do one long form podcast in the past on uh, Chris Hardwick's. Uh, I think it was either ID 10 or the Nerdist when it was the Nerdist. Okay. Now it's ID 10. Yeah. And that was cool. And that was years and years ago. So it was really cool to hear him. You know, I, I listened to WTF still, uh, Mark Maron's podcast, and he was on there. They had a good conversation. And of course, Joe Rogan, um, I listened to all the time. So I, I was counting down that once I heard about it and listened to the whole thing when I was searching for Florida Man. That was part of ah. the soundtrack of my life over that trip. Okay. You know? And, um, you know, he, he, he made some good points. I get what he's saying. And it's like anything, there's two sides to it, but let me just bottom line it instead of going on a tangent. Hey, Ed, and I'll just say this, Shannon Lee is Bruce Lee's daughter. Yep. And yes, the man passed away when she was only four years old. And she mentions that, but nonetheless, I'm not going to argue with the guy's daughter about who her father was. If I'm somebody that did personally ever meet the man. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. You know, it's like I, I get kind of Tarantino's, you know, a lot of his remarks and how he feels and he's entitled to his opinion, of course. But against Shannon Lee, I'm not touching that personally with a 10 foot pole. That's Bruce Lee's actual fucking daughter. Yeah. And, you know, you could have came out and just said, like, basically, like, this is what I would have did if I if I did the same exact thing he did, which I probably wouldn't have. Um, I would have just flat out said, look, I this is fiction. Um, I do apologize. Maybe I should have thought about that a little bit more when I made it. 
that I didn't really take into consideration what his daughter would think. And for that, I do apologize. And from that point forward, I probably would have shut my fucking mouth as far as criticizing Bruce Lee, because I thought she made a really good point in one of the quotes that she said. She's like, he keeps using these stuntman stories and things as a full basis for everything, yet ignoring my father's, uh, you know, influence on culture, uh, mixed martial arts as we know it today, competitive martial arts, uh, peace and, and philosophy and, you know, basically what Bruce Lee means, especially to us. If you guys follow the show, I think you kind of get where I'm leading to here. Um, he's like basically what Bruce Lee is to everyone now is way more important than maybe if he was shitty to somebody in 1967 on a set. It's become bigger than that. It's more important than that. Now, if you're somebody that had a shitty experience with him on set, you have all the, you know, right in the world to be like, he was an asshole. But someone that never met him, like you said, the Jay, and you're only going from secondhand stories and shit. When it comes to his daughter, maybe shut the fuck up. Uh, I, yeah, because I, I, well, I was, I was just going to say, I like Tarantino's movies, but I swear as the years go on, I don't like him as a person at all. Just at all. It just is what it is. I don't well, expect it to line up. I'm just telling, you know, like trying to convey how I am with it. Like some people have, fa- you know, you like his movies and stuff and I like his movies and stuff. I don't love all his movies, um, but some people laud this dude as a fucking genius and they get a little ridiculous with it. And I feel like that's why he kind of pushes this shit because he has this massive fan base behind him. It would kind of be like if Kevin Smith just became a total asshole for no reason, just because he has a bunch of fucking nerd fans that are going to defend him everywhere he goes online. Just is what it is. Yeah. And he's always been eccentric. He's an eccentric personality and that's just how he is. So uh, I think he's like so many humans. He's, he's complicated and I don't know him personally. So I just kind of go by what I read and hear, you know, him say in interviews like this. And as far as this one goes, yeah, I'm definitely um, on Shannon Lee's side on it. And for, for those wondering, listening to us that might not have heard it just specifically a real quick tidbit of what Tarantino told Rogan on Rogan's podcast. He said, I can understand his daughter having a problem with it. It's her fucking father. I get that before quickly dismissing others criticism. So it's kind of one of those things where he's like defending himself and how he feels about it. But he's saying, well, but I can understand why Shannon thinks that that's her dad and kind of moves yeah. on. And it's like, you know, her article here, she broke down a lot of things. I, I think even kind of going after him as she did, I think she did it in a very respectful and, and really, you know, well put together way in this article for those that might want to read it. It's on hollywoodreporter.com. Uh, Shannon Lee, Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, just look it up. I'm sure you can find it, but you know, she breaks down a lot of things that I'm not going to get into, uh, but breaks it down really well. But like I said, for my take on it, Hey, at the end of the day, I'm going to take the side of Bruce Lee's daughter over uh, Quentin Tarantino on this. Yeah. Movie. Same here. And, uh, and real quick, before we take a break, the J here comes the secret question of the week. I thought this was pretty interesting. I seen some people doing this on Facebook. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting, I think, as far as the thought process that goes behind it. So the J I posed you the question, what movies could you comfortably say that you've seen 10 times in your life? Oh, I did catch wind of this. You, you kept it from me, but I did, uh, see this on Twitter. So 
10 movies I've seen at least 10 times. So let me just go off the top of my yeah, head. Exactly. That's what I want. Cause that way you have to be comfortable with it. So if you're on the edge and you, oh, maybe I didn't see that one. Then you didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like you got to be comfortable. Tell me the ones that you know with certainty that you're like, oh, I've seen that 10 times. I've seen this 10 times. Like that's what we're looking for. Right. All right, I'm going to bring it. Hate y'all. Um, Rockies, one through five. Okay. Indefinitively. Yep. Bra- Braveheart, indefinitively. Yep. Um, Conan the Barbarian. Yep. I knew you were going to say Goonies. that. Goonies. Yeah, Goonies. Yep. Evil Dead 2. Mm-hmm. Army of Darkness, for that matter, because I usually watch them together. I haven't watched the first one weirdly as much. I always watch Evil Dead 2 and Army of okay. Darkness. Um, Let me think. Let me see off the top of my head. Monster Squad. Okay. Predator. Yep. That was on my list. For sure. Home Alone. Okay. Because I watch that pretty much every Christmas. Halloween. Yeah. Halloween was on Seen mine that for sure. Numerous, numerous times. And I'll, I'll end it there for now. Hey, that was just off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more if I think about it. But I, I like going off the top of my head and you just throwing it at me right here live on what's real. So stick it there. So what are some of yours? Uh, Dawn of the dead, night of living dead, day of the dead, for sure. Uh, probably the first, I'd say the first seven Friday the 13th. Um, good fellas. I've seen 10 times. I've seen Scarface 10 times. Um, I've seen kids about 10 times. I would say, uh, creep show. I've seen 10 times. I've probably seen Martin 10 times. um, Rocky, I've definitely seen 10 times. Um, I'm not so sure about the sequels to that. I've probably seen Rocky four more than 10 times. Um, I've seen Goonies 10 times. I've seen Halloween 10 times. Uh, I've seen My Bloody Valentine uh, more than 10 times because I used to have it on VHS as a kid. I taped it off something. Um I've probably seen the original Nightmare on Elm Street 10 times. I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre 10 times. Um, I've seen Taxi Driver 10 times. Uh, I've seen Bloodsport 10 times, just inconsequentially through the years on television. I'm pretty comfortable with those, just off the top. Like, I'm sure there's probably more that I'm just not thinking of right now. But, yeah. I'm, no, same here. You know, like, oh, Christmas Story. Easy. I've probably seen that movie 10 oh, times yeah. in I'm the last three that. years. Like, 10 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's on 24 hours on Christmas every year. Exactly. And I watch it usually two or three times on Christmas. It's a tradition. Yeah, because I, I watch it. Like, they started at 8 on Christmas Eve. And I would always, like, wrap presents and watch it. And then I watch it probably before I go to yeah, sleep. Yeah, just have it on. And then I probably watch it one more time totally on Christmas Day. So I watch it probably three times every Christmas. It's just how I am with it. But yeah, I thought that was an yeah. interesting question. Like to really think about that and be like, fuck, what movies have I seen 10 times that I'm fully comfortable saying that about? So uh, very cool question. But it is time for our very first commercial break this week. And when we come back, we're going to head on down to the last drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob Briggs for some Little Shop of Horrors and Humanoids from the Deep. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real Podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads. 
at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. This summer on the What's Real Podcast. We're going to have a full-on review of the entire brand new HBO season of Hard Knocks this year with the Dallas Cowboys and a full-on preview of the NFL 2021 season. Brand new movie reviews such as Netflix Fear Street and The Tomorrow War on Amazon Prime. Top-notch professional wrestling talk continues here at the What's Real Podcast with WWE events, Money in the Bank, and the hottest event of the summer, SummerSlam. And the What's Real podcast is going to wrestling, all elite wrestling, that is, as we attend Dynamite and Rampage. Then it's full on coverage of the follow up to that spectacular documentary In Search of Darkness with Shutter's own In Search of Darkness Part 2. All this and more, including the return of Thursday Night Prime, coming this summer to the What's Real Podcast. Feel the heat! And we're back and we're down here at the drive-in with our buddy Joe Bob, the last drive-in for the last week of the last drive-in. First up, we're going to take it all the way back to 1960. This is probably the oldest movie that we've spoken about on, uh, you know, the last drive-in segment here that we do. Uh, This is from 1960. This is directed by the legendary Roger Corman. And it's a movie that I think most people will recognize in one way, shape, or form because it's been public domain forever, and it is The Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Seymour works in a skid row floor shop and is in love with his beautiful co-worker, Audrey. He creates a new plant that not only talks, but can survive or cannot survive without human flesh and blood. Um... It's also probably mostly recognized by most people as the 80s remake that they did with Rick Moranis uh, playing Seymour. After Uh, they turned it into a musical. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But this is starring Jonathan Hayes with Jackie Joseph. Uh, Dick Miller is in this because even in 1960, Dick Miller was in everything. He's still a character Uh, actor. Also, Jack Nicholson shows up in this. Yeah. Because Jack Nicholson is from the Roger Corman school. And the cool thing about this episode of The Last Drive-In, it is all dedicated to Roger Corman. He was even on here as a guest. That was my highlight. Um, me too, because I'll be honest with you, when they first announced their first title, I kind of groaned because I'm not the biggest fan of The Little Shop of Horrors. I've never been. And I knew that Roger Corman was going to be on, and I could think of like... 50 better movies that I'd rather see from Roger Corman, like some of the Poe stuff they could have did with Vincent Price and stuff, Um, you know, or even the trip, you know, with Jack Nicholson. But they went with this one. I guess I kind of see why, because this is kind of like an exercise in how to make a movie with nothing. Um, And it's kind of the movie that put Roger Corman on the map as far as making movies for himself, because you know, he was in the Hollywood system, uh, kind of didn't like the fact that there was too much involvement of everybody in making a movie. He just wanted to make movies. 
So he had the opportunity to get a studio, which he did. And he just started pumping them out left and right. He was financially successful even to this day on the stuff that he produces. Um, so well, it's a pretty legendary career. But the thing that is he's probably most well known for is because Roger Corman's films and his studio became like a breeding ground for some of the greatest actors, directors and film people of all kinds that have ever done work in the film industry. Including Scorsese and Coppola, for crying out loud. And like you said, Jack Nicholson, as far as acting and goes, and the, the list goes on and on. And that's just a few people. I mean, James exactly. Cameron is from that school. Joe, uh, Joe Bob was rattling off the one point towards the end. It's just insane yeah. how many people I mean, came from Corman. We would literally need to do a segment on this to name everybody. It's that. I was going to mention that. One, yeah, that's a podcast segment for another day is a, a Corman retrospective because he's a hero of mine. He's literally Absolutely. the yeah, literally the most successful independent film producer of all time. Uh, as, as Joe Bob goes to mention, not to get too far out of chronological order, but just while I'm thinking about it, hey, you know, just a... a tidbit I thought that was really cool is that one of the films that he did and I, I it escapes me off the top of my head but it didn't it was like one of his few films that didn't make any money and mm -hmm. years years later it was picked up by a British uh, company and, and put out again and then it ended up going in the green so Joe Bob mentions to him and he's like yeah you're back to being undefeated every single one of your pictures made money you know the one that didn't it took 50 years but it ended up making money. You're still undefeated. So that was really cool. Um, which brings up the coolest aspect of this original Little Shop of Horrors to me, hey, you know, which I thought was interesting because I never knew this about it. It was basically made uh, through a bet where oh, basically yeah. Corman was challenged to make a feature film as quick as he could. And he made this movie, a feature film, The Little Shop of Horrors in 1960s in two days. And it's still a record. Yeah. The movie that you were talking about, by the way, is a 1962 drama called The Intruder. The Intruder. Um, there you go. Yes. It, that is the only movie that has never made a profit that he made. Um, this is, and the reason why he brings it up is because he decided that he was going to make a movie that had a political stance to it. Exactly. And kind of, kind of a message and something that he thought was important. Um, and he has also pretty much been known for a long, long time as a very popular liberal. I know we don't get into politics a whole lot here on the show, but this is just the gist of Roger Corman. Um, once that movie didn't make money, he had realized what I like to call the H.G. Lewis method of filmmaking. And that is, it doesn't need to be good. It doesn't need to have stars. It doesn't need to have a message. It doesn't need to have a, a you know, this, that, and the third. It only needs to be one thing. Entertaining. That is the key. That's, where we, that's the Corman, school we come from. Hey, you know, and I thought of you he, when he was talking about that, because you always say, give me what you're preaching. And he talks about that. He's like, if I'm going to give you a sci-fi movie, I'm going to give you sci-fi. If I'm going to give yes. you a horror movie, I'm going to give you horror. Yes. And dude, I'm going to talk about it more with the second feature, Humanoids from the Deep. But it's like Corman was a genius of getting you into the theater uh, with you thinking it's going to be something. And then not only would he deliver on what that thing is, but something like Humanoids from the Deep over delivers. And you're like, holy fuck, this movie's awesome because it didn't just give you what you wanted. It gave you even more. more. That's the key. You always 
like Corman was good at like, you know, they always say, leave them waiting for more. Corman was like, fuck that. I'm going to give them everything they want and more so they will come back. I'm not leaving them hungry. I'm leaving them knowing where they can get a good meal again. That's where he was coming from. And it worked. It works for me. Corman, Every time I see a Corman thing, I'm like, well, it's going to be entertaining. I'm going to check it out. And dude, when you look at his overall just perspective of everything that he did, okay? And I'm not just talking about the movies that he directed. I'm also talking about the stuff he produced. This is a guy that produced horror movies. He produced sci-fi movies. He produced drive-in movies. He would produce fad movies like Rock and Roll High School. Like, you know, when or, you know, like stuff like that would come out through the years and take on a fad. Like Roller Boogie isn't his, but that's a good example of it. Like right. disco and roller skating was a thing. They made a bunch of fucking movies about it. I'm sure it's escaping me, but Corman probably made one of those as well. Like anytime there was a fad or skateboarding or something, they would incorporate that kind of stuff in their movies because it would get people out. Because you have to remember, nowadays, it's super easy for all of us. Like if you want to just watch something that involves things you like, you can just go on YouTube and do that. That didn't exist back then. So if you wanted to see things you liked, you had to find movies about it or read books and magazines and seek out that shit any way you can. And that's how people used to consume the entertainment. And he was somebody there willing to take your money because he knew your money was in your hand and you were willing to give it up for that thing that you liked. So anyway, coming full circle here, back to the movie at hand, The Little Shop of Horrors. Now, as you said, the Jay kind of made this movie on a bet. So when we're talking this movie, it is a an achievement as far as making a money, making a movie for little to no money. Um, for me, it's not really much of an achievement other than that. It's kind of an interesting little story. Like it's a creative, you know, like kind of clever little story. Yeah, with the plant. Yep. Exactly. Um, but it really is kind of just boring and meandering. And it's a movie that's only 72 minutes. Um, I've never been a big fan of this one. It just, I don't really, there's nothing about the story that makes me like it. Um, it, It's not a serious horror movie. There is comedic elements in it. It's, I guess by the time I saw this movie, uh, the the remake had been out at that point. Um, So it was just kind of like, okay, it's a movie from 1960. I get it. Like, that's pretty much it. Like, and not to disparage anything from 1960, it's just made, it was made for an audience that was generations before I was born. So it doesn't work for me like it worked for a lot of other people. That's the only reason I had seen it before Hate You because I was a big fan of the 80s version. And when I found out it was kind of like a remake, reboot, whatever the hell you want to call it, I wanted to check out the original, which I would always do. I did that with The Thing as well. And uh, so this is like the second time I was revisiting it. I think I think it would be mer- worth mentioning, too. I believe there's a color version of this and Shutter showed the black and white. Yeah, because I guess they wanted to show the original, which I, yeah. you know, as a cinephile, I have no difference with it. But I think initially I saw the the black and white version as well. So at this point, I've never seen the color version. But dude, but yeah, uh, my God, it's it's weird. Here's something people might not realize. Roger Corman made another movie in 1959 called A Bucket of Blood that's actually pretty good. This is kind of like a weirdo remake right. of that. Um, and I, I've always thought this, A Bucket of Blood is significantly better to me in pretty much every capacity um, than this is. So I thought that this was a strange choice for it. Um, there's, it's, it's pretty thin 
of a movie. There's not a whole lot. The one thing that I will say, and this is pretty wild to, to see this in 1960, he wasn't a seasoned actor then, obviously. He was just getting started. But, like, dude, Jack Nicholson still manages to steal every scene that he's in. in the movie. So <laughs> yeah. it's he he at least knew that. So, like, you could tell. And, and it shows you why Corman would come to use him a lot. Like, when you seen him early on, it's like there's something about this dude. So, like, I can imagine people that saw him in 1960 and then he became a giant star. They were probably like, I figured that out when I seen him in the Corman shit back in the day. Like, I knew this dude was going to be a major actor. And for those that might be unaware, he plays Wilbur Force, who's the guy that goes to the dentist that loves pain. Yes. And like the dentist just can't seem to, to hurt him no matter how much he's torturing him. And then, of course, uh, famously in the, the reboot mu- musical, the dentist was played by Steve Martin and the Wilbur Force character was, of course, Bill Murray, which was classic. Those scenes. Yep. So yeah. It mean, all goes together. And it's weird because and, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it. So like this is considered like a schlocky little genre movie. OK. And in the 80s, whenever they remade it, that was perfect canon for comedy at the time. Like go back and take something from the schlocky sixties and make it with a lot of the current comedians and people that are making movies. Cause Bill Murray and Steve Martin and even Rick Moranis, they're really good for that type of stuff. That's their era of stuff. So they understand the material and they know how to play it, but not play it to the point where it ruins the movie. They know what they're making. They understand why it's funny. And honestly, that time period in the 80s was perfect for that kind of stuff. Let me throw this at you. Hey, yeah. So pulling up my references as we do to have here on the show and talk things over, I stumbled upon this through IMDb and I have heard nothing about it until a handful of minutes ago. And that is, uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, another uh, modernization and reboot of Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I've heard about it and I have little to no interest in it. It's it, it's just let me like it's just gonna be CGI and goofy shit. And yeah, I just don't and, I don't know. Well, and I was gonna mention too, it is rumored. I'm reading that now too, so it could just be complete bullshit. But did you want to hear the top build cast as of now? Sure. Scarlett Johansson is Audrey. She Chris Evans. I don't think so. Chris Evans is Oren Scrivello. Uh, nope. Taryn Edgerton is Seymour. And Billy Porter mm. is Audrey too. Yeah, there's no way that that's going to happen. I, I'm telling you right now, I don't believe that that movie is going to happen in the least, especially because you're talking about stars that now have kind of transitioned into being major players on you know Marvel movies and stuff like that. So that stuff's going to get the priority. Plus, Scarjo no is Prego. I just heard that. Scarjo is Prego. So. Yeah, so she ain't making that movie anytime soon. So it just kind of is what it is. But <laughs> I just wanted to throw that at you because, yeah, I just saw that. So, But, yeah, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, I get why they show it. and I get why people, you know, really like it and stuff like that. I've never been, you know, the biggest fan of it. It just kind of is what it is. I give it the credit that it deserves, you know, I, I believe, you know. But it just doesn't naturally, and I hate using this as a term, it just doesn't hold up for me. Um, it, it doesn't offer that much as far as what I'm looking for when I watch this kind of stuff. And like I said, Corman, they could have showed something better uh, for him. So the Jade, we got a tagline for this bad boy. Yeah, the tagline for the 1960 Little Shop of Horrors is the flowers that kill in the spring. Tra-la. Hey, yo. There you go. 
So let's move right along here. Uh, to Do you want to rate it? Ratings. Yes. Okay. I mean. My bad. Uh, so what are you doing on the five star rating scale for this one? The J I'll go to. Yep. That's pretty much what I have it at as well. Two stars. Um, like I said, doesn't really hold up through the time. I get why it's kind of, you know, a monumental film in the regards of what it means to, to movie makers and independent filmmaking. But the movie itself isn't really a whole lot to write home about. So we're going to move up to 1980 and we're going to be talking about humanoids from the deep. Now, I didn't know this uh, before we get into it. The Jay, had you seen this before? No. Great. This is awesome. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, it's very fun. Talk about Corman's word right there. Hey, you know, entertaining for sure. And this is the perfect movie to bring up that point, the Jay, because this movie was made by Barbara Peters. Okay. Uh, she had made a few other things for Roger Corman. She was from that school. She would go on to to make a whole bunch of other, you know, film related stuff, uh, not as a director. So she would kind of move into the more technical side and work on TV and stuff too. But she was very unhappy with the finished product of the movie because there were a lot of scenes of nudity and gore that she never filmed. Uh, because when Roger Corman saw the product you turned in, and if it did not have a certain quotient of both, which was pretty much needed at the time to draw money at the drive-ins, um, he would have somebody go out from the, the, you know, the second team and film all that shit. And this is something that I could say about this movie. It makes the movie significantly better. And there's a reason for that. So, and again, this is another Corman classic and he's making a creature feature uh, where there's a bunch of monsters, but only had uh, Rob Bottin did the effects by the way, and only had his money to do one full creature. And this is the guy that made the thing. So he is a, about a year out before he goes and does that. Before um, his Coke so, problem. Well, no, he probably had it on this one too. That's where it was starting. Yeah, if it wasn't just full blast from the moment he got involved with shit because he's a super talented guy. Um, so after a new cannery introduces scientifically augmented salmon to a seaside town in the Pacific Northwest, a species of mysterious mutated sea creatures begins killing the men and raping the women. And yep, there is a full on scene of fucking sea creature rape in this movie. Um, there's a bunch of fucking gore and really gross shit. Um, and this movie fucking rules because of all this stuff, man. Yeah. The, the creatures are gross. Um, it has a really good cast. So you got Doug McClure, you have Ann Turkle, you got Vic Morrow, man. And like, that's the thing. Fuck. Watching this movie reminded me of how awesome fucking Vic Morrow was from yeah. shit like this to the bad news bears. If Vic Morrow was in it, he, his character was going to have a fucking major, uh, uh, what do you want to say? Effect on the, the movie you're watching, whether he's, if he's an asshole, uh, the, the thing that's kind of cool. In yeah, this he's a scene stealer. He, he's a jack off the whole movie, but like when the time comes for him to do the right thing, like he does it like it's just a cool. He was such a good fucking actor, man. It's a shame he died in one of the most controversial Hollywood deaths of all time uh, when he died on uh, Twilight Zone, the movie and was killed by a helicopter with two children. Yeah, um, that was terrible. That, that was um, Landis, right? Absolutely. It pretty yeah. much almost ruined his career. 
Um, no, it kind of did in a way, even though he did get a lot of work after that. Um, but dude, this is a classic example to me of Corman. Now, not directing. This is a Corman production. So he has one of his underlings, Barbara Peters, somebody that's made several movies for him, pick up this movie. And then you get Vic Morrow. You get uh, Ann Turkle, who was a model at the time. And she was a pretty well-known person. So it's a good, you know, to play the damsel in distress kind of thing. But instead, they had her play a doctor. So scientist. uh, Yeah, a scientist, a doctor, what have you, that kind of a deal. Um, But the thing is, now, this movie is kind of a mess as far as the, you know, the plot devices and everything in it. But when it comes to the creatures and the final scene of this movie where they essentially start attacking a fair, it it is just fucking bonkers, dude. And it kind of relates me back to something you brought up. You brought up John Landis. If you ever watch American Werewolf in London, which I know you've seen the J, the best scene oh, yeah. in that movie is when the werewolf busts out of the fucking movie theater yeah. and, running around, and it's just utter chaos. That's kind of what this scene is in this movie. And I'm not saying it's the same exact thing. It's just the sheer unbridled chaos of creatures attacking and people freaking the fuck out. And dude, it pays off, man. It's so good. And the movie's good leading up to that point, too. But that's when just everything just fucking blows up everywhere and it really gets good. This movie's a lot of fucking fun. Let me just shout out right away as well. Hey, you know, the Anthony Pena's character has one of the better names ever. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny Eagle. Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Which was great. But but yeah, it was, it was just a really fun uh, movie. And it's one, you know, again, we'll go back to the theme of, uh, again, what you always promote with films and that Corman is a huge proponent of, and that is the fact that you're, you're going to watch an 80s B-level creature feature. Yes. So if, if you're, you know, if it's that, like we always say, if you're going in this expecting, you know, some classic horror film that's going to flip the genre on its ears, this is not that film. But if it's you go in expecting a goofy, violent, full frontal female nudity creature feature, then you're going to have a lot of fun. And, and let me let me shout this out too, just real quick, because uh, I actually brought this up earlier on in this podcast when we were talking about the movies we watched ten times. And okay. I always mentioned Braveheart, and one of the biggest things about Braveheart is the soundtrack that I love, and okay. that was actually composed by James Horner, who is the composer of Humanoids from the Deep, which I learned, and mm-hmm. uh, that's another notch on Corman's belt as far as uh, you know, huge Hollywood people and their careers, because he actually won an Oscar for Titanic. And James Horner, weirdly going with um, with with Vic Morrow, died in a plane crash in 2015, tragically. Yeah. So throw uh, that tidbits at you, hey y'all. Yeah, it's pretty wild, man. Just to think about, like, you know, some of these movies too. Like, they everything's not as glossy, and I guess you could say the same thing for the people that used to be in movies too. Like, you know, you hear about like. Oliver Reed and like the old fucking style, like movie stars, the guys like to get drunk and fight and shit, you know, like that kind of thing. Kind of like the characters that they display in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from Quentin Tarantino, like, you know, the man's man fucking actors and kind of the, you know, like the eccentric character actor people and, and stuff like that. And and I think these guys kind of fall into that grouping. You know what I mean? And there's so many of these guys like. Dude, I was lucky not to completely deviate. It just reminded me of it. So years ago, 
I was at Cinema Wasteland uh, convention in Ohio. It's a movie convention type thing, and they have actors and stuff. And I saw a panel with Tom Atkins. And you know all the stuff that Tom Atkins is in. And, of course, they're talking about all that stuff. But here's a movie that I don't know how familiar you're with, the Jay. So you might, this, this might show you some cool stuff that you weren't aware of. Have you ever heard of the Ninth Configuration? No. Okay. So the Ninth Configuration, uh, the reason why this is such a big deal to begin with, it's, it's a movie from 1980. It was directed by William Peter Blatty uh, from Exorcist fame. Okay. Now... This movie has a major cast of characters. We're talking Stacey Keach is in it. Scott Wilson's in it. Neville Brand is in this movie. Joe Spinell is in this movie. Robert Loggia is in the movie. Alejandro Ray is in the movie. Tom Atkins is in the movie. Blatty's in the movie. Richard Lynch is in the movie. Jason Miller, the priest from The Exorcist, is in the movie. And Tom Atkins essentially told us that they went, this movie was filmed somewhere really weird, like Romania or something like that. So they were kind of stuck somewhere strange for a long period of time. And it was, he was telling the stories, everything of like guys that were completely shit faced on set. Uh, Neville Brand, I think at one point just disappeared and they had to go find him. And he wasn't like, they didn't send the PAs like me and fucking... <laughs> You know, Jason Miller had to go find him and shit. And Jason Miller liked to drink and fight and shit. And they're in a country <laughs> where, like, you could go to the fucking gulag for yelling at a cop, let alone getting hammered and beating the shit out of somebody. So, like, you know, you would have these crazy movies that, like, it's amazing what the productions would have put up with to keep the actors on them because the actors were basically out of control. Joe Spinell's in here too, by the way. In 1980, the same year fucking Maniac came out. I doubt he was a yeah, well-adjusted man. Yeah, like this this is wild shit over here. And these are the kind of character actors that make up those kind of people and nothing disparaging against them. Sometimes really good character actors from years ago were kind of troubled people. They could play anything. So they're not really comfortable in their own skin. They're more comfortable being you know, a, a pilot and then a cop and then a fucking murderer and then a gangster. You know what I mean? Anything like but themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you hear a lot of these stories and stuff. And that to me is one of the more interesting things in Hollywood uh, is just like the character actor portrayals. Like we always talked about that. Like, you know, they're stars and everything. And that's one thing. But like, to me, the character actors are always the most interesting because they, they play in fucking scenes with these big stars and they don't, allow the scenery to be chewed up around them. They hold their own. And Vic Morrow's yeah. a great example of those type of guys. That's why I was kind of, you know, went off on the tangent. Yeah, it was but, worth uh, on the rant, worth the rant. Hey, yo. but thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, Humanoids of the Deep, man, really yeah. fun flick, uh, cool looking monsters. So even without the uh, the money behind it, you could tell Rob Oteen was going to probably go on to be a major player. And he probably would have continued to be the major player uh, without his battles with, you know, addiction and things like that. But nonetheless, man, you, you could say whatever you want about him, but you can't say that he stunk because everything that guy did was pretty much tremendous and it's on display here. Yeah, to this film too, a, a big player um, kind of offhand was the atmosphere. And again, we've talked about it in past reviews of certain movies like that, that the quote unquote sleepy seaside town. Like I love yep. movies like that with the atmosphere, like the fishing town stuff. Yep. So like, yeah, that, that just added to like it. That too. That's, that's, yeah. one. it just, it, dude, they were so much better. The fog even. 
Yeah, like they used to make a lot of those movies and they just don't really make them anymore, which is pretty weird. If you come to because yeah. like in growing up and shit, that was like we see movies like that all the time, you know. But yeah, they really nailed that stuff. You know, it the, it's funny, too, because I see a lot of the I, I don't even know if this is true, but I feel like a lot of the same places that they shot this movie, they shot a lot of the shit that they did for Piranha, the original Piranha. Oh, like yeah. They set. talked about Piranha. So it's like and that's a James Cameron movie again from the world of Corman. So, you know, he he's really put some of the best. Uh, people into Hollywood that that Hollywood's ever seen through the years. Not to say every one of them is from Corman, but some of the best of all time certainly are. So the J, what do we got for a tagline for this bad boy? So the tagline for humanoids from the deep, they're not human, but they hunt human women, not for killing, for mating. Hmm. I found another one here. It says from the ocean depths, they strike to terrorize, to mate. And to kill. So both <laughs> mating and killing. Just yeah, like yeah. our lives. Hey, Ed, fucking and killing. Fucking and killing. That's the theme of human. Well, we're we're like, we're we're like fucking and fighting. We don't kill. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> uh, so on the five star scale for me, this one gets three and a half. Where are you at, the J? Solid three for humanoids, but yeah, really enjoyed it. Fun. Nice solid ending to to the season of The Last Drive-In. I do know that there is a special coming up. Um, I don't know exactly when. Uh, we'll see whenever that gets posted. We'll obviously take a look at it because whenever The Last Drive-In is open, me and the J tend to like to head on down. So we hope yeah, you we guys love hanging in- out at the drive-in. Exactly. So we hope you guys enjoyed that segment. We are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to do a half-season breakdown of the first part of Dark Side of the Ring. So we'll be back, guys, right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys, this is the Jay from the What's Real Podcast for our official sponsor, Churchill Pictures. Churchill Pictures is a Pittsburgh-based film production company founded by Damiano Fusca and Jared Bajoris. Check out churchillpictures.com for all kinds of information about the company and their work. The website contains dozens of videos, including short films, movie previews, comedy sketches, the entire documentary UCW, The Greatest Show You Never Saw, exclusive independent pro wrestling matches, links to view or purchase their two feature films, Deference and the Unsung, the entire history of the What's Real podcast, the Film City podcast, and so much more. Check out churchillpictures.com today and also check out the official Churchill Pictures YouTube channel. Search for Churchill Pictures and please subscribe. Also follow Churchill Pictures on all social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Churchill Pictures, picture the possibilities. Check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. Two guys with troubled past, disturbed minds, fighting inner demons who are succeeding expectations of what people thought they could overcome. Now they want to reveal it to the world and help others conquer theirs. For t-shirts, hats, and more, check out DarksideDemonClothing.com. time to get into part one here or the the first part of the season of dark side of the ring we got six episodes and uh we're going to kind of give the rundown here on you know basically you know i guess the best to worst or whatever if you want uh what do you think the best one of the season was the jay 
So this is a tough one, and I'll just run it down since we're starting off. Hey, yeah, I'll throw this out there for everybody listening that the first six episodes, uh, again, they're they're breaking season three into two parts. Uh, so we mentioned it. We could even do, uh, when we're wrapping things up here, a quick preview of the remaining season three episodes coming out in September on Vice. Uh, but the first six episodes started with the premiere that was a two-parter in early May with Brian Pillman. Uh, the next episode was Nick Gage, then Collision in Korea. Then the Ultimate Warrior, followed by Grizzly Smith, and the wrap up of the mid season finale was on uh, the Dynamite Kid. And to ask, answer your question for myself, hey, uh, again, it was a tough one. Six intriguing episodes, um, but I'm going to go with the Brian Pillman. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Episodes. I, yeah, I thought the first two episodes, which were the Brian Pillman episodes, they just really nailed everything. Uh, that to me, and it's not just one of the best episodes of the season. It might be the best episode that they've done. Um, I know a lot of people point to the Benoit ones as being some of the best. Um, I think the Pillman ones are right there on par with that and right there on par with any that we've seen up to this point. So, uh, yeah, I definitely would go with that too. Uh, now, I was interested to see, because I know it was a toss-up for you between Pillman and Dynamite Kid. I know you like that one a lot as well. Yeah, the Dynamite Kid is probably my second favorite of the season. I, I give you the order here. We could just go through it real quick. So the Pillman was my favorite. Number two was Dynamite. Number three was Grizzly Smith. Not because I thought it was the best, but I thought it was a pretty important episode for them to do. Uh, four was Nick Gage, one that I really did enjoy. Uh, five was Warrior. Um it kind of took me by surprise that it wasn't as negative as the WWE biography, but I still thought that they brought a perspective to it that was pretty good. And I did think the worst one of the season was Collision in Korea. Um, not that it was a bad episode, but I thought that they just kind of focused on some stupid stuff like the Hawk and, and Too Cold thing, which who cares? There's so many other more details I'd rather know than that. So that's kind of where I had the season going. What do you think, the Jay? What was All your right, my breakdown... So I went with Pillman, as we mentioned, and my second was Dynamite Kid. Uh, my third was uh, Nick Gage. My fourth was Collision in Korea, followed by Warrior and Grizzly Smith. I put Grizzly Smith last, not because the episode was bad. I thought it was a good episode. It was very intriguing, but just because of the content, just kind of swayed it to, because I don't. it's one of those ones, I don't know if I'll ever be in the mood to even ever relive yeah. that because That's of the content. That's a great so that, call. That's kind of how I th thought about that. And, uh, you know, I'm with you on the Collision in Korea one, but I, I was, um, you know, thoroughly entertained by uh, most of that as well, though, too. I mean, there was some funny-ass shit in there. And uh, I was with you. It was, it was tough for the Ultimate Warrior one because of the contrast of it coming out around the same time as the A&E biography version. I mean, it, it's almost like they're parallel uh, pieces, in a way. Yeah. And I'm glad we watched them the way we did, you know, but it kind of sways how I felt about either of them because I kind of almost like put them together, even though, you know what I mean? In a yeah. weird way, even though they're two different shows, but I mean, it's, it's on the same guy and they're coming out at the same time. So they kind of mesh together for me. You know, I might have to, to relive the both of those and kind of compare and contrast in, in the future here. But other than that, that's kind of how I ranked uh, the mid season here. Yeah. I mean, now were any of these, better than you thought they would be and were any worse than you thought they would be um 
the Ultimate Warrior one overall was worse than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, as again, I'm I'm in concurrence with you. I didn't think it was bad. I'm not saying that, but I was expecting it to be even more negative than the A and E version. And like you mentioned, surprisingly enough, it really wasn't. So I would say that for that. And um, other than that, I mean, everything was kind of how I would have hoped or thought. You know, the Pillman one they nailed, as we said, one of the best ones ever. The I Nick Gage that, one was really well done. I mean, his life's so goddamn interesting. Uh, so, so yeah, it's tough to say because they were all pretty good. I thought the Pillman one was better than I thought it was going to be. Um, okay. I just didn't think it would be as as well done as it was. So I was really impressed by that. Um, the the Korea one I was underwhelmed with. I thought that they would have went into a few other things. It, it wasn't like it was bad. Um in the Grizzly Smith episode, unfortunately, was exactly what I expected. So, yeah. you know, it just is what it is. But, you know, overall, a good point of the season there. So here's what we got. And I guess we could talk about these individually here, the J. So this is what we're looking at for part two of season three. First up is Johnny K-9, a.k.a. Bruiser Bedlam. Uh, what do you know about this? And what do you think about this one, the J? So when these were first being announced, I remember talking to you about Johnny K9, AKA Bruiser Bedlam. And I, I had mentioned I had known nothing about that situation until I read up on it a little bit, but then I didn't want to spoil, you know, how I am with spoiling myself. I'm like, you know what? It's interesting. It'd be, you know, depending on your personality, you might want to know as much as you can going into the episode to maybe compare and contrast, you know, certain facts and to kind of compare how they put the episode together because you know more about the subject matter. But for me, I kind of just looked into it. So I kind of what it was about like Johnny K9 ended up becoming a criminal basically, but I didn't want to know too much about it. I want to let the episode tell me. So yeah, I just know initially he was like basically a pro wrestler that went on to become a pretty significant infamous criminal or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, he was a very well-liked guy. Uh, even Cornette's said many times about, you know, everybody liked him. He was a super nice guy. Um, but he also was apparently involved with motorcycle gangs and uh, he may or may not have been associated with firebombing a police station at one point. So that's a really interesting story. I cannot wait to see what they bring out of that one. Um, this is probably the one that I'm most looking forward to, and that is the steroid trials. Um, yeah, the 1994 McMahon steroid trials. This is something that we remember, both of us, I would say, from the 90s specifically. Um, so we've seen tons of stuff and read tons of stuff through the years about this. Um, I'm very curious to see what dark side of the ring unearths from this, because I know they have some pretty good people working for them, uh, especially as researchers and stuff like that. And, uh, David Bixen span is one of the people that is one of the researchers on the show. And he has basically a large portion of a website that he does that is devoted to specifically the steroid trial. So this is going to be one of the best episodes, I think, that they've done to date because there is a lot of stuff out there and a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of weird stuff that came out of this trial that we even both already know about. But like, dude, that's that's always been the thing. Like years ago, just for an example, I've been a subscriber to Wrestling Observer through the years many times. Uh, and the last time that I subscribed, I got a digital subscription. And the reason why I did that is because you can go through their archives and read pretty much their entire archive from a certain point. 
and also when I very first subscribed to the observer, it was, you know, you get a couple old issues of your choosing. And one of the ones that I picked was the steroid trial. And it was the biggest episode or biggest issue of the observer that I've ever read and that I own. And it's unbelievable. So I, I'm dying to see this one. This is going to be fucking amazing. The, the most intriguing aspect to me has to be how are they going to treat the Vince McMahon side of things? Yeah. You know, are they just going to go all in on them? Or are they going to have some form of a, a side that's kind of in defense at all for him? That will be interesting. It's because, you know, for all intents and purposes, it seemed like Dr. Zahorian, the doctor that was dealing with steroids, kind of went into business for himself. And here's like a really weird thing that a lot of people might not realize. So this is one that comes to mind. So I remember in the mid 80s, uh, you know, WWF at the time was good for doing skits and things on television. They had Tuesday Night Titans, which was not a wrestling show. It was kind of like The Tonight Show. And they would do a lot of weird stuff. Well, there was an episode uh, where they, I think it was George the Animal Steel was kind of turning babyface, And they had people like Captain Lou Albano was trying to like, take them to doctors and all this stuff and try to find out what was wrong with them. Well, in one of the skits, they take him to a doctor and that doctor is Dr. Zahorian. So like it, the guy was a Mark and that's why he did a lot of stuff for wrestlers, but the company seemingly allowed him involved in a lot of shit. And as much as they always wanted to wash their hands with him, it's like, but he appeared on your TV a lot back then as a doctor playing a doctor. That's a good point. So yeah. You know, there's a lot of weird stuff with that, but I, I always thought that was interesting. Um, another one is uh, Chris Canyon, um, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And towards the end of his wrestling career in his life, we also found out that he was a closeted gay man. So that could be a really interesting episode because I don't know how much real information we've ever kind of gotten out of Chris Canyon's life. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, and the thing is about us, uh, as I could say for the both of us, just you know, coming up together as wrestling fans, constantly watching together that, you know, you and our, our wrestling group of friends always loved Canyon. He started off in WCW as the the unique character Mortis Who we that we loved. liked. We thought, yeah, we thought he was very underrated at the time. He did tons of innovative moves in yep. the nineties, was a great seller. You know, looked like he was getting murdered out there. It was a good bumper. Um, and he had a, a lot of uh, friends in the industry that with my uh, pro wrestling Twitter that I follow, a lot of them still talk about Chris Canyon all the time, how great of a dude he was. You know, when it's like the anniversary of his death and things like that, there's a lot of positive shout outs. And, you know, a lot of people uh, just wish that he would have opened up more that they could have uh, saved him because um, I, don't, I don't know if you mentioned in the, the build up. Hey, and I might have missed it that he uh, passed away from suicide. Right. Um, I didn't, but you're right. Yeah. So, yeah. So they were, you know, a lot of them wish that he might've been more open with them. Cause no, you know, especially his close friends, of course, state on there that they didn't give a shit what his sexual preference was, but in, in the wrestling industry, especially we always say life is timing during the nineties and things like that to be a closeted gay man in that particular field must've been just excruciating and, uh, you know, it just seemed to, to eat at him. but this will be a very interesting episode. Always love Chris Canyon. Who's no. better than Canyon? Yep, exactly. I was just getting ready to say that. Dude, now now the next two are actually about promotions. One makes perfect sense. The other one I'm kind of intrigued by. The one that makes perfect sense to me is XPW. XPW, yep. This is a company 
that was run by uh, Rob Black, who was a pretty infamous pornographer in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, this is a company also where uh, one of their main stars apparently was having an affair with Rob Black's wife and Rob Black found it uh, necessary to send masked men to his house and cut one of his fingers off in the middle of the night. And this man continued to wrestle for him. Um, Very strange company at a very strange time that oddly enough, even though this was a California based company, we got to go to one of their shows. And I was going to mention another personal story we can tell. It was one of the weirdest pro wrestling shows, which is saying a lot that we've ever attended. Yeah. And we will get into that in a future episode. But believe oh, me yeah. when I tell you, this was one of the weirdest experiences we've ever had at a wrestling show. And boy, you have no idea how much that's really saying. weird and crazy. <laughs> yes. And the other company is FMW, which is Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling from Japan, a company that we are very familiar with through the years through tape trading and stuff. And FMW might have been one of the first Japanese promotions to get on our radar outside of maybe New Japan because of their deal with WCW in the 90s. They were the extreme company in Japan. And we'd seen... You know what? We've seen stuff from FM and FMW before we even knew what FMW was because some of that stuff was on the Stranglemania tape. Yep. Stranglemania and, of course, being huge ECW fans, FMW, like Ed mentioned, was uh, like basically the ECW of Japan. So that was like all us. And, of course, that's where uh, Tanaka came from, who we were huge on in ECW. And the matches that he put on in ECW with Mike Awesome were legendary. Uh, but he was the biggest standout from FMW. But, again, well, that's going to be another very interesting topic to cover. If you are familiar with professional wrestling, and you know the names Atsushi Onita, Masato and Tanaka, Onita. Yep. Uh, Mike Awesome, and Hayabusa. You most likely know them from FMW. So, Can't forget Hayabusa. Good call, Hale. Yep. And another one's going to be on Luna Vashon, which that one will be interesting to me um, because Luna was known to be a little wild and have a lot of issues. It's probably going to be was a, a cool character. episode. But like, dude, yep. yeah, I mean, she was really good at what she did. And she was working in the businessman when a lot of women weren't. So I, I always gave. Luna How did she pass away? Drugs, unfortunately. Was it? Yeah, I thought so. I just, yeah. Dude, I seen, years. I, I seen somewhat something somewhat recently. Uh, it was like a shoot interview or something with X-Pac. And they were talking about drugs. And the subject of Luna Vashon came up and he, his eyes got real big and he was like, yeah, man. He's like, Luna was awesome. He was like, but people knew that she was fucked up. Like one time he told a story about where Kevin Nash was looking for pills and he didn't have any. So Luna gave him something and he's like, dude, I seen him literally drooling in his plate all night. And he's like, and it's not like Kev was never taking shit. Whatever Luna was taking was shit you didn't want because she was yeah, Luna's like heavy shit. Five foot, 105 pounds. Kevin Nash is seven foot, 370. And one pill from her put him into that state. So that says it all. Yeah. So I can imagine what that episode's going to be like. And of course, another one. Last but not is, least. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this one. This something. This is like a wrestling folktale at this point. Yeah. And I'm talking about I can't wait. the plane ride from hell. Which uh, years ago, there was a, a foreign flight from after a WWF show uh, back to the United States where there was literally 
numerous incidents that came out of it. And I'm talking about Brock Lesnar and Mr. Perfect having a wrestling match that almost ended up in the door of the airplane opening. Um, <laughs> Michael Hayes had a like his eyebrows shaved off um, and that caused a bunch of problems. And then Flair was showing his dick to stewardesses left and right. Goldust got fired. Razor got fired. Yep. It's just, there's literally, like, there's never been so much carnage caused from a (laughs) single plane ride in wrestling history than this one. And that's one that I cannot wait to see the stories that come out from that one as well. So, dude, I got to give it to them, though, man. This is not, remember we talked about this when they first started doing Dark Side of the Ring where we were like, man, they're eventually going to run out of shit to do, but they're managing to still find some really good stuff here. Not in pro wrestling, hey, as we say, the circus of pro wrestling. That's that's like our own show here on What's Real where we kind of said, eventually uh, the Thursday Night Prime segment is going to kind of run out of steam and we still have hundreds of films we can cover. So same kind of thing, you know, because that's that's how I wanted to end my take on – you know, kind of the the wrap up and, you know, the first half of the season into the preview here, the second half of the season where the executive producers and co-creators of Dark Side of the Ring, uh, Jason Eisner and Evan Husney, told the rap, uh, this reference here, that with this epic 14-episode season, because uh, as we mentioned, we watched six and there's still seven to come, which is awesome, we've had the opportunity to push the series to new heights and dig even deeper into a world that has captivated us our entire lives. And we're right there with them. Hey, you know. And dude, I wanted to ask you about this. So they did Dark Side of the Ring. And of course, we just saw Dark Side of Football get released too. Okay. Did you see the other, the next one that's coming? No, I'm, I might have, but Very, not off the top of my head. Now, this is weird. So we're starting to deviate a little bit here. I'm talking about Dark Side of the 90s. Ooh, I didn't hear about that at all. Yeah, I, they showed like a quick teaser commercial for it. And they were like, you know, the typical shit like 90s was the decade of grunge and the decade of this and that. But what is the dark side of the 90s? And I'm kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I lived it. I'm sure I could think of a million things. But what the fuck yeah. are you going to actually make a show about? Like, OK, you make one show about Kurt Cobain. Got it. What, what's the other seven? You know what OJ. I mean? Yeah, maybe. I don't like I don't know if they're going for like pop culture or if they're going for like, yeah, maybe, it depends on what they're like, doing. Like maybe I mean, OJ's the 92 riots or something or the Rodney King stuff. Like, I don't know what they're really going for. That's why I'm like, what exactly right. is this? Yeah, that's a good point. They would need to have a theme to make it make some sort of sense. You would think. Yeah. Or they would need to make 500 Just episodes. Ran, Cause I yeah, think about this from a decade. Yeah. Like dark side of the eighties, dark side of the forties. Like, what are we going to be talking about the Holocaust on these now? Like, what is that? Like, I don't know. Like, I have no idea how far they're going to go with these because I'm sure is, you know, if people watch the football one, then maybe they're going to watch this one. And then we're going to it's going to vice is going to end up being the dark side of the channel. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what happens, man. We, we, we've been mentioning this as fans of Dark Side from the door, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of us knew about Vice. I mean, it was up and coming channel. Uh, it's pretty unique the way that they you know, put out some of their news, you know, it's a kind of more hardcore take on things. It's a cool channel, but dark side of the ring became their highest rated show. So this, this comes with the territory as multiple iterations and spinoffs and everything. It's just the way it works. Yep. So we will be back in September covering the new episodes that we kind of just went over. 
Uh, and of course, I'm sure we're going to be talking about plenty of NFL at that point too. So we're going to have plenty of stuff to talk about come the fall uh, because of stuff like this as well. So what do you say we take our last commercial break, the J, and when we come back, we're going to do some wrap up and you're going to tell us about some goofs. Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, I just need some agua and let's go at it. Hate you. Sounds good. So everybody stay tight, hang out. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at cutandrunstudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs Are Goofs. And we're back. And the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? It's been a little while, so this should I was going to say, with the comeback episode after our little summer vacation and our specials the last few weeks, hey, yeah, we are having a supersized Goofs or Goofs, but we're going to do a little something a little different. I have a a preamble here, a little bit of a, an intermission here on what's real, if you will, because it's the spot that I just wanted to throw this out. So before we get to our goofs and our tradition, because um, I meant to bring this up to you earlier. So here on the show, I definitely wanted to shout these things out. So this happened yesterday uh, because uh, we're just huge fans of, of this guy and the Monster Squad's own Andre Gower. Yeah. That portrayed the main character in the monster squad suffered a serious heart attack yesterday. Uh, so I wanted to mention that and just here on the air from the what's real family, uh, give him a good, get well soon. Shout out. Hey, yo. absolutely. Get well soon to Andre Gower, a guy who I've actually met a few times and he couldn't be a better dude, man. He's a really super nice guy. Fucking loves the fans, and he loves the Monster Squad too as much as all the fans. Yeah, he made uh, Wolfman's uh, Got Nards, the the documentary yes. about the Monster Squad that we reviewed on a past episode. If you want to look that up, yeah. So like, man, he's a he's still a young dude. So like, get well wishes to him. I seriously hope everything is gonna be all right with him because I'm a big fan, and he's a better dude. So like, I'm definitely pulling for him. So from all of us here, at what's real? Get well soon to Andre Gower for sure. Yeah, all the emotions here before we get to the comedy. Hey, yeah, because that was a sad thing. And one more sad thing. It's just, again, the placement that I felt for it. And that is a rest in peace to legendary director and producer Richard Donner. Richard Donner, had, yes. Had to get Richard Donner on the show. Hey, yeah. Yeah, that's it. there's been some background chaos going on for me the last couple of days that also involves me not having an air conditioning unit that works here, which is. You're just a glop of sweat the last few days. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been awful, but yeah, that's that's clearly my excuse for for missing Richard Donner here on the show because seriously, great director made some of the best '80s movies uh, of all time for sure. Like you know, The Goonies and fucking Superman and The Omen and that's Lethal Weapon '70s, Lethal Weapon. Like, there's so many movies. It goes Richard on. Richard Donner, 91 years old, nice long life, but like still sad nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the greatest of all time, for sure. 
Yeah, just wanted to shout it out because that was my fault too. I did have the note for earlier in the show, but we'll, hey, we get it in where we can. Hey, rest in peace to the great and legendary Richard Donner. Um, ironically, uh, before we even brought it up, doing the 10 movies we saw, we both said Goonies as yeah. movies we watched 10 times. So there you yep. go, full circle. All right, now onto the positiveness in the supersized episode 76 edition of What's Reels, Goofs, or Goofs. So as we do when we have the viral videos, we're starting off there. Hey, you know, uh, this was a p- pretty popular one from a while ago that we both watched. Uh, Tommy Dreamer had posted it, uh, the pro wrestler. He was actually <laughs> at this show where a wrestler climbs a super high ladder at a professional wrestling indie show and is going to do a dive onto a bunch of wrestlers on the ground below. But unfortunately, and you could tell, like we know this, having done what we've done in professional wrestling, whenever you're nervous or something's not right, especially when it's a stunt that big, you're on a freaking 15-foot-plus-high ladder jumping out of a ring, you shouldn't go through with it. Uh, He was kind of like wobbly and unsure of himself. But to his credit, he went for it anyway, but he fell short with a sickening thud destroying his hip. Yeah, it was like, dude, I was dying because when Tommy Dreamer posted it, he literally had the caption of, so I almost saw someone die last night and then (laughs) had this video. Like, dude, I don't, dude, some of these fucking guys, like, and I'm not talking out of turn here because like, not only have I wrestled before, I've done a lot of stupid backyard shit. And even as a teenager, I got to the point a few times where I'm like, okay, this is really, really fucking stupid here. We should not be doing this shit. And these dudes are like five times that with the shit they're trying to do. And and I'm not trying to be mean, but it's like, dude, do what you can do in wrestling. Like if you're some fat, sloppy fucking dude, you there's plenty of things you can do in professional wrestling that does not involve you jumping off of insanely high bullshit that you should not be jumping off of. Not even to say this dude's quite like that, but nonetheless, he clearly didn't do it right. Well, and to his credit, not only did he finish the match, he won the match. So <laughs> give him credit there. A true weekend warrior, an independent wrestling warrior, will give him credit where it's due. But uh, yeah, crazy, crazy footage. Uh, as we always say with our viral videos, uh, pretty easy to find. Uh, I have it on at Logan Creed on um, Twitter. But yeah, he just jumps off this ladder and lands with a thud. As as Hey Ed said himself when I sent him the video, Jesus, he got no air, fell short, and every on the on the floor was like, "Let's pretend to catch him." <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and next up, since we're stemming off our nation's birthday and our Fourth of July holiday, our second video on the Supersize Goose or Goose episode is one I sent you. Hey, entitled "Fuck Bro, Save Some America for the Rest of Us," which entails a dude on a speedboat that's a bodybuilder with American flags everywhere, fireworks going off, and flames everywhere. He's bench pressing a huge weight fucking uh bench press and then he starts chugging bears beer bears not bears <laughs> that that would have been even more american hey ale or maybe canadian but it, it is great fuck bro save some america for the rest of us i literally just pictured some gigantic then, man decapitating bears and drinking them like a beer <laughs> drinking their blood out of their throats yeah, yeah and drinking let bears. me let me add this is all to the theme this is all to the theme of Hulk Hogan's original all-American theme music as well. So uh, oh. you can check that out on Twitter. 
I don't think people truly understand how many absolutely stupid ass things I've done in my life to that theme song, but there's a lot. I'll just put it that way. Just to save the self deprecating for another segment. But like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly. But yeah, weird. it's, it, it doesn't get any mark in the that hate you. So uh, happy 4th of July. Um, since we missed all you guys while we were on summer vacation here from what's real. And that was super American there. So check that out if you haven't yet. Those are the viral videos on Goose or Goose. Next up, we were cracking up at this. This was from comedian Theo Vaughn uh, posted this. And he said, crime is here, people. In a, a local neighborhood, they posted on a, um, a, a light pole, child with small telescope. And there's a picture of this little kid with a, a telescope, including an enhanced image that looks like some Pixar shit. And it says, a child with a small telescope keeps coming by and staring up into our apartment. I have a wife and two kids up here. We don't need this kind of thing. <laughs> he said, by the time I run down, there he is, gone. What has he seen? Um, but yeah, I got a kick out of that. You guys can look it up, but it, it is funny. At the bottom of it, it says, if this is your child, get control of it. Oh, God. It's, dude, this is, you know, the sad thing is we're looking at this like it's like humor. And of course it's humor. But like, you know that this is like a real thing, probably. Like some oh, yeah. weird fucking kid. <laughs> like, like, every, like everybody in that neighborhood's like, oh, yeah, the fucking telescope kid. I don't like him either. Fucking yeah, weirdo. a little creepy, creepy bastard. He reminds me of us. <laughs> fucking Marty McFly's dad in the 50s. The original Peeping Tom. Uh, next up, hey, you know, this is one of our like unique kind of goofer goose uh, articles and uh, news pieces here where I don't know if you saw this. It's posted by CNN uh, from a handful of days ago. Also, you know, talk about America posted on the 4th of July where a prototype flying car has completed a test flight between two cities in Slovakia spending 35 minutes airborne. Hey, you know, the dawn of the flying car has upon us. I don't know about you, but seeing how people drive on the roads as they are, um, I ain't really looking forward to fucking people crashing into my house and shit because that's coming because people do that shit with regular cars. Like, yeah, people, I was going like, to say that's that's what's going on with Tesla's, the, the self-driving cars yeah, kill, killing I just, mugs. I just seen that shit earlier today. It like one caused an accident. It's like like we're definitely devolving as a culture, you know, like. Dude, I saw this thing the other day, and I know it's a little off subject, but it falls follows under like we had a good run, but everything is over. Like there's some fast food place that's coming out with a new chicken sandwich. And guess what the bun is made out of? Penises. That would probably taste better than this. But <laughs> fucking airheads. Oh, with a chicken sam like what yeah. the fuck are we doing? Like, like you'd be surprised. It's an amazing combination. Yeah. Like I saw a couple weeks ago, another thing, like not like that, but similar. It's like a thing that people are doing online. They're, they're like eat watermelon with yellow mustard. It's, it's tremendous. And I'm like, no, I don't eat like everyone I know, but no, no, it's really good. And I'm like, no, I don't need to try every fucking thing. I'm good. Like, if somebody like walked up to you and was like, I could punch you right in the nuts, but it won't hurt. It'll feel awesome because I know how to do it. This You'd be like, no, I'm good. I'm cool. 
I'm not going to take the chance that you're just going to punch me in the nuts. And this is all bullshit. Like, I'm good. I yeah. don't need to believe you, you and, and be like, oh, yeah, I did. You ever do the nut punch thing and it feels great? Like, no, what's that? I'm good. I don't need to know everything. I'm cool. You ever see you're going to see like the CNN, like medical headline, like um, Americans buttholes are in dire straits. And then 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 you read the article. They're eating watermelon with honey mustard and shit. Uh, doesn't put it past me. Like we say in these cases, hey, you know, I think I'm the craziest idiotic goof on the planet. And this type of shit makes me feel like I'm the mo- next modern version of Einstein. Up here, <laughs> for Christ's sake. I mean, seriously, we live in a world nowadays where like if you're doing bad, you got to look around and go like, wait a minute. I'm doing yeah, something exactly. wrong because there's no way that this dude isn't dumber than I am. And he has this and does this for a living. Like, there's just no way. Like, I'm sorry. I don't even eat, I don't even eat Whoppers anymore, for Christ's sake, let alone fucking airhead chicken sandwiches. Yeah, I mean, I had a Whopper the other day that was tremendous because I haven't had one in forever. Oh, don't get me wrong. And, I get it. but And dude, I'll throw this just a side note. This is not a paid spot, by the way. But you ever see the, did you see the shit for the new Burger King chicken sandwiches that they have? The chicken? Yeah. They're fucking amazing. It's like one of the best. Yeah. Like out of the fast food, the only place that doesn't make a better one, I'd say is fucking Popeye's is better. But they're, that one is better than the rest of them. That's why competition is good for business. There are these chicken sandwich wars now going yes, on. Only like, in 2021. Hey, yo. Yeah, and that shit kills me too. Because I'm like, what did everybody just find out last year that chicken sandwiches are a thing? Like, I've been eating them forever. But like, apparently the world just, fu- wait a minute. You mean they put chicken on a sandwich like they would a, a burger? It's like, yeah, dude, they've done it forever. Where, where the fuck have you people been? It's not that mind blowing just a chicken sandwich but people Unreal. are weird i don't know that's the gist of it people are goofs people are weird there you go from flying from flying cars to chicken sandwiches hey you know, and as to, to wrap up this portion of the goose or goose segment the air car as the prototype is called uh said by the ceo is no longer just a proof of concept it has turned science fiction into a reality hey yeah so we are having air cars become a reality here and you know what that means? If he told you they're that far in the process, now they just got to bring in the marketing people to create a better name than Air Car. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes on to say that Uber and Hyundai unveiled plans for an electric flying taxi at last year's Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. So here we go. Hey, yo. Oh, God, I don't want to live here anymore. <laughs> you might not have to. You'll, you'll be able to get to Mars in maybe 10 years. At this juncture, I'm never going to be in the Mars fucking tax bracket. (laughs) Believe me when I tell you that. I will be left here to die. (laughs) Yeah, me and you both will die together, brother. Fuck it. Uh, To wrap wrap up the big supersized edition of Goose or Goose here at episode 76 of the What's Real podcast, a girl named Core Blimey says that I get orgasms working out and it's mortifying. I'm too scared to step foot in the gym because of my corgasms. Okay. (laughs) The the gym might not be for everyone, but for one young woman, it means running the risk of reaching climax in front of everyone. What was this on? Uh, The sun. Okay. Goddamn UK. So, so 
if and, and this is a big gigantic if but if that woman is listening to the show right now i'm gonna give you some advice this is great okay this is like a fucking you know like help me or fucking whatever the hell like the those help columns used to be you know like dear abby and shit okay so Instead of telling this to a newspaper writer, maybe go see a doctor about it since it's such a fucking problem. Just an idea. <laughs> here, here live on the show, I sent you the article so you can reference it. I wanted to surprise you with this one. But Sophie Blackman, a journalist from Hedardshire, shares her story about how she discovered she suffers from <laughs> exercise-induced <laughs> orgasms after shedding six stone. <laughs> Dude, I'm dying. Okay. The reason why I'm dying is because I just see this, like, you know how whenever somebody text messages you something or like it pops up and like you get the article and then you get the images. There's yeah. a, there's an image of the woman standing there. Like, you know, they took like a top half shot of her. And then the other half is her straddling a kettlebell. And I'm like, whoever did that such an asshole. <laughs> it's like no we gotta take one picture that looks like she's fucking something so we can bring up the orgasm thing (laughs) these people are fucking nuts (laughs) and it's it's like you talked about hey you know they did go to the doctors corgasms as they're called eios exercise induced orgasms was first recorded by u.s sexologist alfred kinsey in his 1953 book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. So this goes back to the 50s, believe it or not. Hey, you know, um, but just to wrap it up, she she did state her first experience because uh, she mentions that it didn't happen throughout the first few months of working out. I was trying to focus on breathing and staying alive. But once I gained stamina, confidence, and strength, it was like a volcanic eruption down there. Dude, I'm dying because I got the article brought up and I just see the main headline says core blimey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is way too funny for no reason at all. Uh, As Sophie says, I've avoided gyms ever since my first corgasm. I do every at-home workout I can find and to get through a full workout, I have to desperately try and think about everything that doesn't get me hot under the collar like dead grandmothers (laughs) or bloody cats. Dude, okay, now, a lot of people aren't going to like me saying this, but it's true, and I guarantee you I have you backing me up on this, and you're a very reasonable person. So all I'll say is, now now you know what it's like to go to the gym when you're a dude. (laughs) Exactly. Because it's like, holy fuck, when did this gym become a place where pornos happen, apparently? Because I'm seeing lungs out in this motherfucker. Yeah, thanks to the invention of yoga pants, I stare at lights most of the time. I've, I mean, I've learned to to you know block it out, dude. It's not even trying to be funny. And I'm now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying women can't wear the shit. Wear whatever you want. I'm not complaining. It's just at times you will see shit that's like, dude, like I like I accidentally walked through a wall yesterday. Like why? Like. I don't know. I just looked at my phone because I thought somebody texted me and I put it away. And as soon as I brought up my fucking head, I seen a girl wearing pants that looks like she has nothing on. And I'm like, I almost tripped over myself and fell through a door. Like, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, not, you thought she was bottomless. Like, I'm not gawking at people. It's just jarring or out of nowhere. Like fucking somebody's goddamn monkey hoof is in your face. It's like, Jesus, where did that fucking come from? Again, not complaining. I'm happy that people apparently are that comfortable with themselves. 
that they don't give a yeah, shit. But when I drop a dumbbell on my foot, don't blame me. You'll know why it happened. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm not saying it. And dude, it's fully my problem. I'm not putting it on anyone else. Like That's the way I've always taken it. Yeah. I've never been like, women shouldn't be out here in these pants. Like, no, I'm just like, I should be able to control myself. But sometimes it's like, there's like, those things are made of fucking oxygen. That's it. Like, that's, that's not a fucking real substance that clothing is made out of. That's insanity yeah. to me. But it is what it is. I mean, if they make it and people wear it, then it's a thing. So what do I well, know? Well, that's, of course, all Kim Kardashian promotes is her shit. Is, it's like called, I think it is, it's even called skin. Dude. Like, or something like that. It's just, that's all it is. It's no, ridiculous. I don't know here. I'm just claiming full ignorance on this. And I know men and women are different. Okay. And that's fine. But like. God damn, like I see women in pants that are so tight and I'm like, there's no way you're going to be able to tell me like, no, this, these are super comfortable. And I'm like, if you fucking say so, but I beg to differ, like maybe I'm wrong because I'm not a woman, but like, fuck, like, yeah, I mean, it is different. Cause like, I always thought that, you know, I'm, I'm going back years, obviously with where we're at now, but with thongs. I'm like, that can't be comfortable. But now it's like every woman wears them. So, you know, my wife included, it's like, you know, I guess they're, it's, you know, they're comfortable. It's what they wear. I don't, but, dude, but for us, you know, wearing a thong would be horrible. Is it one of them things seriously where it's like you can get used to anything? So it's like, I think, I mean, maybe we could get used to thongs. We should do that as an experiment for the show. Hey, uh, you and I will wear thongs every day for two months and report it. You want them out. You got it. <laughs> you let me know how it turns out. I quit. <laughs> but dude, yeah, my, I mean, I'll tell you all about my band ham, as I call them, the band ham. Oh, that's, hammock. that's atrocious. Fuck. That's like, but dude, that's a thing. Like, I don't understand. Like, I don't understand a lot of shit, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in other people's position and I don't understand it, which is fine. Again, I don't need to know everything. But in a way, I feel bad for women because I'm like. I ain't trying to like, if that was socially acceptable for men to dress like that, I guess I just wouldn't, I would look like a goof because I'm not dressing like that. No matter well, what. I don't think either of us ever, neither of us ever purchased a pair of skinny jeans to this point. So. No. And I won't. That's weird to me. <laughs> yeah. that, like, like, no, man, them jeans are too comfortable. We got to get them fucking up in your fucking asshole more. Like I'm good, bro. Like that's, you know, to each his own, but that ain't mine. Sorry. You know, but what do I? That's the way to put it. Hey, yo. Hey, to each their own. And as I say to my brother from another mother, hey, yo, between the thud heard around the world and the independent pro wrestling scene this year, to a kid with a telescope getting called out by his neighbors, to the America viral video and flying car prototypes into workout orgasms, goofs are goofs. Guess what, guys? That's it for episode 76. I'm glad that uh, you guys came back to join us once again. And uh, I didn't even tell you this, Jay. Uh, did you know what happened in Parts Unknown? No, I was going to ask you. Fill us in. I don't know. It's unknown. <laughs> Duh. Think about it. Good makes, point. Makes perfect Just sense. Just thought about it. So, 
That's it episode does. 76. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Of course, if you listen on Apple iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps get more eyes and ears on the program each and every week. So we would appreciate that. And of course, you can listen on all your favorite podcasting platforms each and every week, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course, each and every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, I doubt that you do. Uh, but send it to us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Maybe we'll read it on the show. Maybe we won't. Maybe you won't even send it to us. Maybe you will. We shall see. But before we get out of here, the J, I hear you revving it up over there. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like I'm doing peck flies, nutting like a squirrel getting ready for the winter. Hey, yo. Um, yeah, pumped up that we're back, man. It was a great summer vacay. Still bringing out the content that is consecutive weeks of some semblance of content from the What's Real team since January 2020. We're very proud of that. Anybody hearing my voice that's been along for the ride, or even if you're just dipping in, we appreciate you and your ears. Uh, we hope you love hanging out with your boys. Love the show. Shout out, as we always have to do, for the wizard behind the boards, our producer Cam. Thanks for all you do, Cam. The great work and the 16K sound that we're putting out every week. We got to love it. And to you, hey, Eel, appreciate the run, man. It's good to be back officially. And I'm re-energized and ready to go. Like I said, the 21 inch pythons are back. And as I always say, taking the lead from you, hey, you stay safe, stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. All right. So that is it for us this week. Obviously, thanks to you, the J for sitting down with me here each and every week as we do. Nobody else I'd rather do it with brother. So thank you for that as well. Uh, shout out to Cam, the wizard behind the boards for all the hard work he puts in, especially when we do these specials and everything too. So thank you for that, Cam, because we all know that nobody beats the whiz. So that is it for us here this week on episode 76. Join us next week for episode 77 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, get vaccinated, and we'll see you here right here next week on the What's Real Podcast. Bye-bye. What's real? What's real?